Don't you love an extra $100 in your pocket? Have a TurboTax expert file your taxes for you by March 31st to get $100 back instantly. Because no matter what moves you made last year, TurboTax makes them count. That means getting $100 back and 100% accurate taxes only from Intuit TurboTax. Must file by 331. Credit only applicable to federal filing fees with TurboTax full service. Offer can be modified or terminated at any time. Are you searching for the best in online black radio? Then go to blacktalkradionetwork.com, helping you filter through the noise. Real talk, black talk. The internet is full of half-truths and all-out lies. We've all seen them, and many people on social media complaining about it. Here's your chance to show and prove. WorldAfropedia.com is a black-owned and operated encyclopedia. There are several thousand articles, but we need help. We can't uncover all the truth ourselves. So please, join us and become a writer, editor, or blogger for WorldAfropedia.com today. Every little bit counts. We owe it to the future generations to put the truth out there. Visit WorldAfropedia.com, the African-Centered Encyclopedia, a global database of African knowledge for the purpose of bringing about global African wisdom and understanding. WorldAfropedia.com Asana, guilty of survival. For those who know the life and struggles of former Black Panther and Black Liberation Army fighter Asada Shakur, the U.S. government attacks on her by ludicrously labeling her a terrorist and posting a bounty on her is the sure sign that the government has succumbed to madness. Asada, in her self-named memoir, Asada, and more clearly in her aunt's legal recitation entitled Inadmissible Evidence by Attorney Evelyn Williams, shows how the U.S. government, in deadly conspiracy with state governments, waged an illegal, unconstitutional, and criminal war against the black freedom movement, with particular attention to the Black Panther Party. The U.S. government, in collusion with state governments, broke every law and torched every precedent to get Panthers. They attacked Panthers in their offices, and when that didn't work, they framed them in court. And when that didn't work... They drugged and assassinated them in their beds, as what happened to Chicago Black Panther leader Fred Hampton. Who were the terrorists? Those who attacked people who were fighting for their freedom? Or those who tried to defend themselves against such attacks? Asada joined the party for the same reason she joined the army, to defend the lives and freedom of a people under monstrous attacks by the state. Ask yourself this. Why was Asada Shakur in prison in the first place when those who conspired and undertook to wage night raids to murder Fred Hampton in his sleep never, ever were charged with anything? Over 20 Panthers were killed across the country, and nothing. Asada was targeted because she was a bright and beautiful symbol of the black freedom movement. She was ambushed, arrested, and shot to stop that movement. And that's why she is attacked still. Believe it or not, she was charged with killing her mentor, Zaid Malik Shakur, 
who was shot to death by cops on the Jersey Turnpike. That black politicians signed on to this slander is a sign of the rottenness of black political classes today. Meanwhile, the black poor today endure conditions that would have been unthinkable in the 60s and 70s. Yet in their targeting, their repression, their mass incarceration, their daily humiliations, their hell, the black politicians are silent. Black homeowners lost more wealth in the past seven years to racially targeted foreclosures than at any time since Reconstruction, and black politicians, paid by the same hands that pick black pockets, are silent on solutions. Since the very foundation of America, black people and Indians have been the primary targets of terrorism. They have trouble driving while black, shopping while black, schooling while black, and even walking while black. And the black political class has neither solution nor voice. Be honest. What people in America are more in need of an army to defend and protect them than blacks? Asada should never have been targeted. Instead, she should get a Nobel Prize. From Imprisoned Nation, this is Mumia Abu-Jamal. Context of White Supremacy, Gusty Renegade in for another broadcast, hopefully to share constructive information on the system of white supremacy. Today's date, Friday, May 22nd, 2015. So I have been told uh, once again the importance of black journalism, Mr. Mumia Abu-Jamal giving his commentary that was from 2013 uh, talking about freedom fighter victim of white supremacy Asada Shakur Uh, this is our third study session on her autobiography Uh, we are picking up on chapter 5 again our narrator Mel she will be uh, participating in the study session at some point in some way to give her feedback on this book. This is her first time reading the book as well. And uh, to give some of the thoughts, what has stood out and perhaps even to uh, respond to some of the comments that folks have shared uh, about our narrator, definitely enjoying uh, her reading of the text and looking forward to getting started again. This is Asada, an autobiography chapter five context. Of white supremacy. Chapter 5. All right, Chesmar, pack your things. You're being moved. Moved? Where? You'll find out when you get there. Then I'd like to call my lawyer. You can call your lawyer when you get where you're going. I kept trying to find out where they were taking me. The continuation of the Jersey trial after the change of venue to Morristown was still a month away. Maybe they were just moving me ahead of time. Maybe they were taking me back to the workhouse. I wasn't too worried, though. Anywhere was better than that basement in the Middlesex County Jail. The sheriff came down with a piece of paper in his hand. Where am I going? I asked him. I have a federal order to produce you, he said, waving the paper around. You are being turned over to the custody of the federal government. What for? I don't know. You'll have to ask the feds. My abrupt transfer from one jail to another, without either notice to my lawyers or explanation to me, was a scenario that would be repeated over and over again during the next few years. 
After our motion for a change of venue from Middlesex County was granted in October 1973, I was returned to the basement of the Middlesex County Jail, where I believed I would remain until the trial resumed in Morris County on January 4, 1974. Evelyn immediately swung into action, contacting the National Jury Project to explore the level of racism in Morris County and preparing a number of motions she anticipated would have to be made before the Morris County Court. In addition, she was working on the continuous motion to remove me from solitary confinement in the Middlesex County Jail that was then before the New Jersey Federal Court. The underlying argument of the motion, that this kind of confinement destroyed my ability to adequately participate in preparation for my trial, had to be supported by psychological data and the opinions of experts. Evelyn was trying to find psychologists and sociologists willing to provide their professional assessments in support of the motion. She was also trying to locate a forensic pathologist, a ballistics expert, a forensic chemist, and other specialists we needed for the trial, and trying to raise money to pay them. I was aware that there were two indictments outstanding against me for alleged bank robberies. Evelyn had been told that trials for these charges would follow the trial in Jersey. One of the indictments was for a Bronx bank robbery that occurred in September 1972. I had been indicted for this crime, along with Kamau, Avon White, and others in the federal court, Southern District of New York, located in Foley Square in Lower Manhattan. I knew that Evelyn had made a motion before the Southern District Judge Gagliardi to have that trial postponed until after the termination of the Jersey trial. Having learned that the motion had been granted, I didn't connect the move to New York with the bank robbery trial. I was wrong. The trip was the usual high-security, endless procession of cars. As usual, I enjoyed the ride. Just the walk from the door of the jail to the car did me good. It had been so long since I had seen daylight or breathed fresh air. I looked at the trees and the grass and the sky as if I'd never seen them before. It was a gloriously beautiful day. When the feds told me they were taking me to New York to go to trial, I didn't know what in the world was going on, but I was sure Evelyn would straighten things out. There was no way in hell I could go to trial in federal court, not unless they gave us time to prepare for it and cancel the Jersey trial. There was no way that Evelyn could deal with both trials at the same time. She was working so hard, I couldn't keep track of all that she was doing. I knew we had arrived somewhere in Queens, but I didn't know where. There was no courthouse in the direction we had gone. The car came to a bridge where pigs were stationed, pointing rifles and guns. On the other side of the bridge were more police. Where are we? Where is this place? You are now on Rikers Island. This will be your new home for a while, the marshal told me. It will never be my home. I looked around while they waited for clearance to pass through the gate. There were huge, ugly buildings in front of us. Not old or dilapidated as I had imagined when I pictured Rikers Island, but institutional-looking nevertheless. Are these buildings jails? I asked. Yep, the marshal said. They're all jails. There are a lot of criminals in the world. Everybody in jail isn't a criminal, I told him. And they've got a lot of criminals locking people up. They've got a gang of criminals in the White House. The marshal just grunted. The car turned into a modern brick building. There were no old-fashioned bars, just jalousied window-bar combinations. I was brought into a large receiving room and locked into one of the small rooms that lined the sides, empty except for some benches and a dirty bathroom. After a long wait, I was taken out to be printed and photographed. I was returned to the room, then called out again to fill out forms. I immediately got into a hassle about the forms. I had left the line for address blank. Where do you live? 
I don't live anywhere. I'm in jail. I've been in jail for six months. Well, where did you live before that? I don't remember. And it wasn't a lie. I remembered the place, but I couldn't even begin to tell anyone the address. While I was underground, I had made a habit to never remember addresses. I used landmarks to remember a place, and I never had trouble locating any place I had been to once, but even if I visited it a hundred times, I never looked at the address. Well, where does your mother live? Why? We need an address. I haven't lived with my mother in years. Well, give me the address anyway. I don't know if my mother would want you to have her address. I'll have to ask her. The guard insisted, but that line was left blank. The guard was a black woman with an afro, and there was another one next to her with a lopsided wig on. She was black, too. In fact, most of the guards I had seen so far were black. I was quickly to find out that the overwhelming majority of guards in the female jail at Rikers are black. But when they open their mouths and express their opinions, you wondered. But that's another story. After I had been waiting for what seemed like hours, they brought in a whole bunch of women. It was wonderful. They were real, live people, talking and laughing. It had been so long since I had even heard a conversation. I just sat there staring at them. I know I must have looked like I was crazy, staring like I was, but I just couldn't help it. I was overwhelmed. I could barely talk, though. When someone asked my name, I stammered and stuttered. My voice was so low, everyone constantly asked me to repeat myself. That was one of the things that always happened to me after long periods of solitary confinement. I would forget how to talk. The next phase was the strip and search. There were two groups of women, those who were returning from court and those who, like me, were new admissions. We were directed to stand in little booths and take off all our clothes. Then we were told to turn around and squat, run our fingers through our hair, and lift up our feet and open our mouths. This was for everybody. The next step was only for new admissions. They put us in shower stalls without curtains. We were told to take a shower. And then were given this stuff which they told us to put it in our hair and on our pubic hairs and wash with it. What is this for? I asked. It's for lice and crabs, the guard said. It was humiliating. The last stage was the search. Every woman who came into the building had to go through this process, even if she had been nowhere but to court. Joan Bird and Afeni Shakur had told me about it after they had been bailed out of the Panther 21 trial. When they told me, I was horrified. You mean they really put their hands inside you to search you, I had asked. Uh-huh, they had answered. Every woman who has ever been on the rock or in the house of old detention can tell you about it. The women call it getting the finger, or, more vulgarly, getting finger fucked. What happens if you refuse? I had asked Afeni. They lock you in the hole and they don't let you out until you consent to be searched internally. I thought about refusing, but I sure as hell didn't want to be in the hole. I had had enough of solitary. The internal search was as humiliating and disgusting as it sounded. You sit on the edge of the table, and the nurse holds your legs open and sticks a finger into your vagina and moves it around. She has a plastic glove on. Some of them try to put one finger in your vagina and another one up your rectum at the same time. Anyway, I had an instant, mile-long attitude. I wanted to punch that nurse clear to oblivion. 
Afterward, the guards had the nerve to tell me that a mistake had been made and a doctor would have to make a complete examination. I was just too disgusted. He was a filthy-looking man who looked more like a Bowery bum than a doctor. He coughed all over me without even covering his mouth, and his fingernails looked like he had spent the last five years in a coal mine. The only good thing about him was that he was quick. He rattled off diseases like he was an auctioneer and asked me if I had them. Then he gave me a one-minute examination, took my blood, and that was it. I was kept in the receiving room until long after everyone had left. Then, a pleasant enough guard, with the scar on her nose and mouth, took me to my cell. We went down a corridor that seemed to be a mile long to a hallway where a guard sat inside a glass cage. Buttons and knobs and lights decorated the cage. It looked like some kind of spaceship. Open up five, the guard who had brought me said. There was a thumping sound, and then a humming sound, and then nothing. You can go to your room now. Go where? I asked. Just walk down the hall and the door will open. You'll see it. The hallway was long. When I got to the cell, the light came on. When I went in, the door slid shut behind me. It was something out of a science fiction movie. The long halls, the sliding door, the control panel. Space jail, I said to myself. Inside, there was a cot, a dirty sink, a seatless toilet, and a roll of toilet paper. I was tired and wanted to go to sleep. I'm turning the light out now, a voice said over the microphone. The light went out, but a yellow light stayed on. Turn the light off, please, I called to the guard. Again, a voice came over a microphone. The light must stay on. It is there for your own protection. The light stayed on, and I went to sleep. Morning. The doors slid open. Breakfast ladies came over the microphone. It was early, but I was anxious to get dressed and look around. The first thing that hit me was the smell. I don't care what jail I've been in. They all stink. They have a smell unlike any smell on earth, like blood and sweat and feet and open sores. And if misery has a smell, like misery. The walls of the cell were covered with obscenities and love declarations. Apache loves Carmen. Linda and Lil Bit. India and Rosa. True love always. From the window, I could see a small paved yard with grass growing between the cracks in the pavement, and then another long building. A few women were in the day room, but most stayed in their cells, which were barren except for the toothpaste writing that covered the walls. In prison, toothpaste serves many functions, one of which is glue to hang up pictures. A few of the cells were fixed up with pictures from magazines hung on the walls and a knitted or crocheted afghan on the bed. Clothes and cardboard boxes were on the floor. The women looked evil and ashen. They glanced at me with only vague interest and went about their business. They were all black or Hispanic. I took a shower and spent the rest of the morning walking back and forth. Some of the women were bloated, with swollen hands and feet. A few had a real strange look about them. One sat in a chair, her eyes crusted with sleep, giggling quietly to herself. A group of women sat at a table playing spades. They asked me if I wanted to play, and since I had never heard of the game, volunteered to teach me. It turned out to be like whist, only spades are always trumps. Then it was lock-in time again, the second one for the day. 
The first had come after breakfast. There were two women on either side of me who had been locked in their cells all day. Don't you want to come out? I asked, stupidly. They broke up laughing. No, one said. I like it here. When she stopped laughing, she told me she was locked. That meant she was locked in her cell until she was seen by the board. What's the board? I asked. It's the disciplinary board. When you get an infraction, they lock you up until you see the board. Then they let you out? Sometimes, but we're going to PSA. What's that? It's the hole, the bing. This is two main, where you go before they take you to the board. Then, after that, if they think you haven't done enough time down here, they send you to PSA. PSA stands for Punitive Segregation Area. Solitary. You mean you don't stay in this part all the time? No, we're on the sentence side. We only had to come here because we stole the medication. We stole almost everything on the medication truck and drank it. Coke almost OD'd. That's why we're down here. This part is for people who have infractions or for crazy people. Crazy people? Yeah, the one named Coke answered. They got some real bugs down here. How come you here? I don't know. I got here yesterday and this is where they put me. You got a homicide? A homicide? Yeah, a homicide. You here for murder? I have a homicide case in New Jersey, but I'm here for a bank robbery trial. That's probably why they got you down here, they speculated. They're probably going to move you soon. They asked a million questions. Who did you kill? I didn't kill anybody. Well, who did they say you killed? A cop, a New Jersey state trooper. Oh, shit. You're going to have a hard way to go. You didn't really do it? No. You got a bank robbery, too? Did you rob the bank? How much money did you get? I didn't get any money because I didn't rob the bank. Yeah, then your boyfriend did it and put the blame on you? No, I don't have a boyfriend. Oh, so you like girls funny, they asked. You kind of cute. You want to go with her? One of them joked. You ever do time before? No, never. You got any other cases? Yeah, I have another bank robbery. Did you do that one? No. Well, damn, they got you all hooked up, the one called Dolores said. How come they try to frame you up like this? Because I'm a revolutionary. They say I'm in the Black Liberation Army. Oh, I know you. You that girl I read about in the papers. Yeah, what's your name? Asada, Asada Shakur, but my slave name is Joanne Chesimard. Yeah, you the one. I never thought I'd meet you. How you doing? Yeah, Coke said. I saw your picture on TV, but you look different now. How? I asked. When I saw your picture, I thought you was much bigger and much blacker, too. Really? I laughed. It was a statement I'd heard over and over. Everybody told me they thought I was bigger, blacker, and uglier. When I asked people what they thought I looked like, they would describe someone about six feet tall, 200 pounds, and very dark and wild looking. Bad as them papers said you was, I just knew you had to look bad, and here you are, just a little old thing. I asked them what they were in prison for. In the course of those next few days, I was to learn a whole new vocabulary. Jostling was pickpocketing. Boosting was shoplifting. Juggling paper was writing bad checks. Dragging or playing drag was conning. Later that evening, a woman who had just come from court told me that Phyllis wanted me to come to the gym at 8.30. I was overjoyed. 
I had heard that Simba was on the rock, but I thought they might move her to make sure we had no chance to be together. The gym was large. Women were playing handball and basketball, dancing, sitting on the bleachers and talking. Finally, behind a clump of women, I saw Simba. We embraced, and both of us just sat there, trying to get out all of the words that were in our hearts. So much had happened since we had seen each other. We had been close, and we were both members of the Black Panther Party. For a while, we had lived together. She was always a real earthy sister, with a heart of gold. She told me about her case, about the other comrades she was in touch with, and then that she was pregnant. Homie was her nickname for her lover, the baby's father, Kakuyan Olugbala. He was a beautiful revolutionary brother, and he had gotten murdered by the New York police. Kakuyan and I had gotten to know each other pretty well while we were both at the Harlem branch of the Black Panther Party. He was one of the brothers who, in the days of the Panther Party's lumpen ideology, would be called lumpen. He was raised in Harlem around 116th Street and 8th Avenue. A relaxed, easy kind of person, but a fighter to the heart. He loved weapons and was a genius with them. I was glad about her pregnancy and sad at the same time. She was facing 25 years. Although I tried to be cheerful, I guess she could see the concerned expression on my face. Don't worry, she told me. These people can lock us up, but they can't stop life. Just like they can't stop freedom. This baby was meant to be born. To carry on. They murdered homie, and so this baby, like all our children, is going to be our hope for the future. I would think about her words many times later. It's early in the morning. It feels like a quarter to zero, and I want to sleep. I hear my name vaguely over the microphone. Something about court. They are calling for the court. Hurriedly, I roll out of bed, shower, dress, comb my hair, and I'm ready to go. They bring breakfast on the food truck. I can't even stand the look of food, much less eat anything. All right, court ladies, time to go to the receiving room, the microphone wails. It's too early in the morning for that thing. I want to tear it out of the ceiling. I stumble down to the receiving room, still not fully awake. It's 7.20 a.m. I sit in the receiving room for three hours. Finally, the marshals come. Now they want me to hurry. One of them chains me up. First he shackles my feet, then he puts a chain around my waist, fastens the handcuffs to the chain, and the handcuffs on my hands. I can barely walk. Or shuffle. Court. Dull. Gray. Green. They are putting me into the bullpen. I don't know why they call it a bullpen, though I have often speculated. Attorney visit, one of the marshals calls as he opens the bars to let me out. We go to the end of the hall. Evelyn is huffing and puffing. She always puffs and huffs when she's angry. In a few minutes, I know that she will begin pacing and tapping her feet. They're trying to force us to go to trial right away, she tells me. You know I've been busy drawing up motions for federal court. What do you mean federal court? Aren't we in federal court? Yes, but if the judge denies our motion for postponement, I want to be ready to go straight into the circuit court. What's the circuit court? It was all Greek to me. That's where we appeal if the judge issues an unfavorable opinion. We go on talking. Evelyn is trying to explain to me, and I am trying to explain to her that we can't possibly go to trial. There's no way in the world you can be ready to go to trial now. 
I am ranting. I know, I know, Evelyn replies. I rant and rave indignantly while Evelyn tries to explain the law to me. They call us to court. The judge is Gagliardi. He looks just like what he is. A racist dog cracker. Kamau comes into the courtroom. I am delighted to see him. He has aged. He's grinning, but under the grin his face is hungry. I wonder what he's thinking. Rob Bloom, Kamau's lawyer, is up on his feet talking. He's asking for a postponement. Everything he says is logical and makes sense. Evelyn gets up and starts to rap. She is talking pure, unmitigated truth and logic. The judge looks at the ceiling. I predict the outcome of the hearing and keep turning around to look at the audience. Friendly, familiar faces smiling at me. I don't want them to ever stop. The judge denies our motion for postponement. The judge denies all our motions. I want to scream. Dirty dog, slimy pig, you're not a judge. You're just another prosecutor. I look at the prosecutor. He's smug. His face is unreal. Like a poster. He looks like a 1940 war poster. John Q. Public. I keep staring at him. Nobody could look that corny. He's like a ghost from the past. I'm convinced he doesn't know it's 1973. The lawyers ask for a joint meeting, and the judge says yes, but make it short. The lawyers outline the strategy of the appeals. What are our chances on this appeal? I ask. There's a chance, Evelyn says. Slim, but maybe a chance. If the courts are interested in justice, well, of course they'll support our position. We all know how big an if that is. The next time we went to court five days later, it had snowed. The trees were bare and covered with ice, and, though I don't like winter, it was a beautiful sight. As soon as I had arrived in the courthouse, Evelyn was there to tell me that the circuit court had denied all of our appeals, and that Gugliardi was talking about going to trial that day. I just want you to understand that there's no way I can adequately defend you on this short notice. I haven't had time to prepare pre-trial motions. I have received no discovery material, and I haven't even had time to think about an appropriate defense because I haven't been able to find out the basic facts of the case. I just want you to know that. I know, I told her, and I know that you're doing the best that you can. At any rate, Evelyn said, if worse comes to worse, you'll have a solid issue for appeal. It was a depressing picture. We were clearly being railroaded. We went before the judge. Again, he was arrogant and belligerent, determined to force us to go to trial right away. Again, she asked the judge for a postponement but our argument fell on deaf ears. He ruled that we could have a joint conference later, but the trial would begin immediately. As we left the courtroom, Akila was standing in the hallway with Kisise, Kamau's two-year-old daughter. As he walked near her, she held out her arms to him. Kamau took about two steps toward her, and the marshals jumped on him and began beating him. I jumped on the marshals and tried to pull them off. In an instant, there was one hell of a fight in the hallway. Finally, the marshals drew their guns and forced us to lie down on the floor with our arms spread apart. We lay there while they stomped our backs and kicked us as they handcuffed our hands behind our backs. Akila ran to tell everybody what was going on as Kisise screamed hysterically. I will never forget the haunting scream of that child as she watched her father being brutally beaten. After the fight, the marshals were vicious and vindictive. They did everything they could to provoke and harass us. 
Newspapers reported that we had attacked the marshals. Kamau and I decided that we weren't just going to let ourselves be railroaded quietly. This so-called trial was such a blatant miscarriage of justice that we weren't even going to participate in it. And we didn't want Evelyn and Bob Bloom to participate in it either. Just sit there and don't say anything, we told them. We'll do the talking. And do the talking, we did. At the next court session, Galliardi asked the lawyers if they were prepared to begin picking the jury. Both of them made statements to the effect that, since it was impossible for them to represent us adequately, we had requested that they remain mute. All right, then, we'll proceed with or without you, the judge roared. Bring in the panel. As soon as the jury panel entered the courtroom, Kamau and I began to tell them what was going on. We told the jury that he had been appointed by Nixon and that he was persecuting us because of our political beliefs, that he was the same judge who had just given Mitchell and Stans, the Watergate defendants who did not have one fraction of the valid reasons for an adjournment that we had, an extended postponement. After a while, the judge ordered us removed from the courtroom. Jury selection continued, with only the judge and the prosecutor participating. Every so often, the judge would send the marshals back to ask us if we were going to behave. Of course, we would tell the marshals. Once we returned to the courtroom, we behaved. Again, we told the jury what was happening and that the judge was trying to railroad us. As soon as we began to talk, the judge ordered us from the court. Whenever we were about to be thrown out, the marshals vied for positions closest to us and for the opportunity to grab us, twist our hands behind our backs, and get their licks in. To avoid being manhandled, as soon as the judge said, remove the defendant from the courtroom, I would say, the defendant will remove herself. Most of the time, it worked, but one day, the marshals were so gung-ho that they jumped on me and started brutalizing me in open court. Evelyn jumped up like she was ready to fight and stood between me and them, holding them away with an outstretched arm. She complained to the judge. My arm and hand had not yet fully recovered, and I was still partially paralyzed. Evelyn's remarks made the marshals more vicious. They became so brutal that all of the spectators began to cry out. As the marshals carried me out of the courtroom, the spectators chanted, Railroad, Railroad. The judge ordered them removed. As I was being taken downstairs, I could hear the commotion. People were chanting and yelling and screaming. The marshals, I later found out, had beaten some of them. I sat in the bullpen, lost in my thoughts, when they brought a white woman and man down the hallway and put the woman in the cell with me. I looked at her without much interest. Asada, she said. I'm so glad to have finally met you, but I never thought it would be this way. I looked at her blankly. My name is Natalie Rosenstein. I was upstairs. I was one of the spectators in the courtroom when they started pushing and shoving and beating people. What? I said. You're kidding. No, we didn't move fast enough. So they arrested us, she said, referring to herself and the white man. What did they charge you with? Obstructing justice. After that, Kamau and I were banned from the courtroom. We were put into a freezing room next to the courtroom where a loudspeaker had been installed so we could listen to the trial. In the beginning, they slammed the door shut. At first, we wanted the door open because it was so cold and the warmth from the rest of the building helped. Then we began to enjoy our privacy. It was good to be able to talk to each other without someone looking down our throats. Because we knew that sooner or later they would open the door and stare at us, we would open it. Let some heat in. It's freezing in here. The door stays closed. After a while, they locked it. One of the first things that Kamau and I had discussed was Islam. He had been a Muslim for some time and was deep into it. 
He was seriously trying to convince me to convert and become a practicing active Muslim. I had always said that if I had any religion, it was Islam, but I had never practiced it. Because of Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X, the Muslim influence over our struggle had been very strong. But it had always been difficult for me to accept the idea of an all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God. And, I reasoned, how could I be expected to love and worship a God whose master plan included the enslavement, torture, and murder of black people? Kamau argued that Islam was just a religion, opposed to oppression. Oppression is worse than manslaughter, he quoted from the Holy Quran. A true Muslim is a true revolutionary. There is no contradiction between being a Muslim and being a revolutionary. I didn't know much about it, but I agreed to seriously check it out. Muslim services were held regularly on Rikers Island, and Simba and I began to attend. Talking to Kamau was so good for me. Solitary had affected me really badly. I had closed up inside myself and had forgotten how to relate in an open way with people. We spent whole days laughing and talking and listening to the courtroom madness in between. Each day, we grew closer, until, one day, it was clear to both of us that our relationship was changing. It was growing physical. We began to touch and to hold each other, and each of us was like an oasis to the other. For a few days, the question of sex was there. Then, one day, we talked about it. Surely it was possible, but, I thought, the consequences. Pregnancy was certainly a possibility. I was facing life in prison. Kamau would also be in prison for a long time. The child would have no mother and no father. Kamau said, If you become pregnant and you have a child, the child will be taken care of. Our people will not let the child grow up like a weed. I thought about it. That was true, but the child would suffer. All our children suffer, Kamau said. We can't guarantee our children a future in a world like this. Struggling is the only guarantee our children will ever have for a future. You may never have another chance to have a child. I have to think, I told him. My mind was screaming. Who would take care of my baby? I thought about what Simba had said about our children being our hope for the future. I had never wanted a child. Since I was a teenager, I had always said the world was too horrible to bring another human being into. And a black child? We see our children frustrated at best, noses pressed against windows, looking in, and at worst, we see them die from drugs or oppression, shot down by police, or wasted away in jail. My head was swimming. What had my mother and grandmother and great-grandmother thought when they brought their babies into this world? What had my ancestors thought when they brought their babies into this world, only to see them flogged and raped, bought and sold? I thought and thought. How many black children are separated from their parents? How many grow up with their grandmothers and grandfathers? Didn't I stay with my grandparents until my mother had finished school and was on her feet? I remembered all the discussions I had had. I'm a revolutionary, I said. I don't have time to sit at home and make no babies. Do you think you're a machine? A brother asked me. Do you think you were put on this earth to fight and nothing else? I thought about what Zaid had always told me. While you're alive, girl, you better live. I am about life, I said to myself. I'm going to live as hard as I can and as full as I can until I die. And I'm not letting these parasites, these oppressors, these greedy racist swine make me kill my children in my mind before they're even born. I'm going to live and I'm going to love Kamau. And if a child comes from that union, I'm going to rejoice because our children are our futures. And I believe in the future and in the strength and rightness of our struggle. 
I was ready for whatever happened. I relaxed and let nature take its course. When something important was happening in the courtroom, we listened. But usually, whatever was happening droned on and in boring chatter that amounted to nothing. Lawyers have a habit of turning ten words into a hundred and say nothing more in the process. The trial was like something out of some playwright's imagination. We called it the vaudeville show. Evelyn and Bob, after registering their daily protests, sat mute. The judge raved and ranted. The pigs barked like vicious dogs. The witnesses lied like crazy. The jurors, who had been picked solely by the prosecution, looked and listened expressionlessly. There were a couple of black jurors, and although we held little hope we would be acquitted, we placed the microscopic hope we did have in the black jurors. Even though we had presented no defense, had not participated in the trial, we thought that there was a slim chance they might not go along with the program. Black people are generally not as brainwashed as white people when it comes to the so-called system of justice. The whole court process began to take its toll on me. Half the time, I wasn't eating because they usually served pork for lunch and sometimes they had pork for dinner. Breakfast was out of the question. I could never figure out what they gave us. I called it monster stew. I was always freezing and I didn't have a coat. My mother had brought me one, but I had given it to Simba. She was pregnant and needed it more than I did. One night, when I returned from court, I began to feel awful, like a knife was stabbing me in my side. I could hardly breathe. I went to the prison doctor, and the diagnosis was pleurisy. When the judge learned I was sick and unable to come to court, he had a fit. He acted like I had gotten sick just to delay the trial. The next time I saw the prison doctor, he was nervous and shook up. They keep calling me about you, he said. They want you back in court right away. They want to know how fast I can have you back in the courtroom. Who keeps calling you? I asked. Everybody. People. I've got to get you back in court as soon as possible. And that's exactly what he did. Every day, they brought us into the courtroom. And every day, as soon as the jury came in, we began to tell them what was happening. That we were being forced to trial without being given time to prepare a defense. And every day, the judge ordered us removed from the courtroom and cited us for contempt. It was comical. What are you going to do? I would ask him after I had been cited for contempt for the hundredth time. Put me in jail? Lock me up? One day, when the judge had been particularly crazy and the marshals had been particularly brutal, Evelyn just couldn't take it anymore. I'm not going to sit here and watch this spectacle, she said. If you won't permit me to defend my client, there is no purpose in my being here. And with that, she got up and started to leave. Get back in here! the judge yelled. I order you to get back in here and sit down. Evelyn kept walking. If you don't come back here and sit down, I'm citing you for contempt. Evelyn walked out of the courtroom. The judge cited her for contempt. In 1975, after all appeals, including the Supreme Court of the United States, were denied, she served the 10-day sentence in maximum security at the Winchester County Jail for Women. The trial soon ended, and we waited patiently for the verdict. Evelyn and Bob gave us lectures. Expect nothing but the worst. There's a chance, but it's slim. Kamau and I waited for the conviction. One day of jury deliberation passed. Two days passed. The jury seemed to be taking forever. We wondered what was taking them so long. It was an open and shut case. We had cross-examined no witnesses, presented no defense. Kamau and I spent the time tenderly, savoring our last few moments together.
The next morning, Evelyn and Bob came in, grinning. It's a hung jury, they giggled. Giliardi is fit to be tied. They're going to call us into court in a few minutes. We just thought we'd come in and give you the good news. Ten minutes later, we were in the courtroom. The judge was grimly thanking and dismissing the jury. The marshals looked like they wanted to fight. The prosecutor looked like he wanted to cry. We found out later that a lone black juror had refused to convict us. He had heard us. The look on Galliardi's face gave me great pleasure. I looked at him and gave him my most meaningful smile. His face turned red and he looked away. Afterward, we met with the lawyers. We were still giddy and in a state of shock. What does this mean? Are they going to try us again? They're going to try you again and right away, Evelyn told us. The new trial will begin on Monday. Kamau and I looked at each other. We were sick of this case, but we're ecstatic that we were going to have more time together. Are we going to have the same judge? No, Bob said. They've got to assign a new judge. Evelyn was caught up in our gleeful mood, but as usual, she was business first. We've got to come up with a trial strategy. Sitting in that courtroom day after day and watching that fiasco enabled us to do one thing. We were able to see and analyze their case. I feel that now we are ready to go to trial. They don't have a case, Bob said. I don't even know how they've got an indictment. We know, Kamau and I said. Their case is utterly absurd, Evelyn said. We know, Kamau and I droned again. Their witnesses are as phony as $3 bills, Evelyn said. We know. They don't have one piece of physical evidence, Evelyn ranted. No photographs, no fingerprints, no witnesses, no nothing. We know, Kamau and I chanted in unison. They couldn't possibly have any evidence, I said. We weren't there. Well, I know that, Evelyn said indignantly. That's not the point. Bob and Kamau looked perplexed. Evelyn and I just looked at each other and smiled knowingly. We had found out in New Jersey how evidence could appear out of nowhere and other evidence disappear. Evelyn and I have a very close relationship. We love each other intensely and we get along wonderfully, usually. But when we argue or disagree, it's awful. We are both outraged that the other one doesn't agree or see our point and we feel betrayed and furious. And neither of us has the mildest temper in the world. Add to that the tremendous pressure we were both under and you have the recipe for fireworks. During one of our strategy meetings, Evelyn and I locked horns. Try as we might, we couldn't reach any kind of agreement. After a while, we weren't even communicating. It became a matter of who had the last word and the final decision. I'm the lawyer, she yelled. I know what I'm doing. If you aren't going to listen to me, then what's the point of having me defend you? I'm the client, I yelled back. I'm the one who's going to do the 25 years in prison if you're wrong. What you're saying is that you don't trust me or my judgment, Evelyn said. Our argument went from bad to worse. After a while, we were saying all kinds of things we didn't mean to each other. I don't need this shit, Evelyn stormed. What the hell do I need to defend you for? You haven't got an ounce of sense. You don't have to defend me if you don't want to, I responded. Don't do me any favors. You need all the favors you can get, Evelyn countered. Well, I don't need them from you. I can defend my damn self as well as you can. I'd like to see you try it. I don't need this mess. I will. I don't need you either. Well, go ahead and defend your stupid self then, Evelyn screamed. I will. After the argument, I was tired and blank. All the tensions had been drained out of my body. I was still mad, but I was sorry too. Evelyn was probably right, and I was probably crazy. It's so hard working with someone who is so close to you. 
it's like having your mother or your wife or your husband as your lawyer. It's real hard to be objective. Personal stuff sometimes gets in the way. I didn't know whether I was being a sane adult or a rebellious child. The next time we came to court, I could see right away that Evelyn was still angry with me. I fully intended to try and make up, but her cold manner made me draw back and get mad all over again. Is your decision still the same? She asked coldly. Yes, I responded icily. Judge, she told the new judge, I wish to be relieved from the case. Miss Shakur wishes to retain another lawyer. Is this true? The judge asked me. Yes, I want to defend myself. A little while later, she was off the case. As I sat in the bullpen, feeling stupid and stubborn, the guard brought in a public defender. Galliardi had assigned him because he didn't like the way Evelyn was behaving. I told him I didn't want him to represent me, that I was representing myself. The judge had assigned him to my case. What did you do before you were a public defender? He told me that once upon a time, he had been a prosecutor. That was the end of the conversation. I would rather have had an alligator for a lawyer. I don't remember his name, but he sat through both trials as my supposed lawyer, even though I refused to even speak to him. Since I was now defending myself, I was entitled to a lawyer as an advisor. Everyone suggested lawyers, but most of them were white leftists. I wanted, if at all possible, a black woman. Not just any black woman lawyer, but someone who was in tune with the politics of the black liberation struggle. One of the names given me was Flo Florence Kennedy. She was a black lawyer who was very active in the women's movement, well-known on the speaking circuit from coast to coast, and more renowned as a feminist and political activist than as a lawyer. She fit the bill perfectly. She was just what I wanted. Some argued against her. But Asada, they said, she's not a trial lawyer. Flo is not a criminal lawyer. You need both, someone who can give you sound advice. I was unmoved by their arguments. She's wild. She's flamboyant and eccentric. She might scare the jury. She can't be any wilder than this case is, I countered. Besides, I don't need a criminal lawyer because this isn't a criminal case. I need a political lawyer. I was in a wild mood, and I was determined to handle the case the way I saw fit. I wasn't expecting any such thing as justice. This case was like something out of the Twilight Zone, and I was convinced that it couldn't be treated like a normal, run-of-the-mill criminal trial. I was determined to use this case to expose the deceit and crookedness of the government. A meeting between Flo and me was arranged. Flo warned me over and over about her lack of trial experience. You know, darling, I haven't been inside a courtroom to try a case in years. I don't care, I said. You've been out in the world. You know what reality is, and that's enough. Flo agreed to be my legal advisor, and I was ready to go to trial. Chapter 6 My mother and stepfather broke up, and my mother, my sister, and I moved to a new apartment in a housing complex in South Jamaica near New York Boulevard in Foch. One side was the projects, and the other side was the co-op where we lived, but they looked about the same to me. Compared to Jamaica, Parsons Gardens, where we lived, was a little black dot. South Jamaica, Jamaica, Hollis, Bricktown, St. Albans, Springfield Gardens, South Ozone, etc. were all joined together to make up a black city. You could live your whole life in Jamaica, and the only time you'd see a white face was when you shopped on Jamaica Avenue or when the insurance man came around. At one time, Jamaica was all white. Black people had moved out to the island to escape the ghettos of Harlem and Brooklyn. 
They bought old houses at exorbitant prices, only to find that, within a few years, their nice neighborhoods had turned into crime-ridden, drug-ridden, poverty-stricken places they had to run from. I loved Jamaica, and I was just starting to get into the beat of it and to know my way around when my mother and I had one of our terrible arguments. I don't even remember what the argument was about, but I was hard-headed, stubborn, and under the impression that a grave injustice had been done to me. The next day, I got up, packed my clothes, and headed straight for the village. Greenwich Village was where the artists and musicians and all kinds of weird people were supposed to live. I was fascinated by the idea of beatniks and bohemians, even though I had never met any. I figured that if I belonged to any place, it must be the village. I walked around with my suitcase until I was exhausted. I remember thinking that people here didn't look that different from anybody else. I found a place to check my suitcase and spent the rest of the day going door-to-door asking people if they had any jobs available. Most didn't even look up at me. They just gave a flat no. At the end of the day, I was tired, disgusted, and hungry. I had nowhere to live and not the slightest idea what I was going to do next. I went back for my suitcase, but the place was closed. After that, I just walked aimlessly until I reached a little park. I sat down on a bench, tired as hell and unable to take another step. After a while, a little white guy with bumps on his face sat down next to me and started talking. I didn't understand half the things he said, but he seemed nice enough. When he asked me if I wanted to go to a restaurant across the street with him, I gladly accepted. I was starving. It was an Italian restaurant, and the scent in the air was heavenly. I ordered enough to feed a mule. The guy talked about all these people I didn't know and about his job. He kept saying people on his job were conspiring to get him fired. I worked there for eight years and they didn't even give me any notice. He told me over and over that the company he had worked for had stolen two of his inventions and patented them, and that when he tried to get paid for them and to get credit for his ideas, the company tried to get rid of him. What did they do? I asked. They did everything. They stole my files and my papers and then spread rumors about me. He said he was some kind of engineer. I should have never trusted them. He kept saying, you can't trust anybody. When the food came, I ate like I had spent a lifetime starving. Doesn't this food taste funny to you? The guy asked. I tasted some more, and it was good. There's nothing wrong with mine, I told him. There's something wrong with this food, he said loudly. What did they do to my food? The waiter came and tried to calm the guy down. I don't understand, the waiter said, but if you like, I'll bring you another plate. Although the guy said it was better, he still thought it tasted a little funny. To change the subject, I told him a sad story about my mother being in the hospital and that I had nowhere to stay. Oh, you can stay at my place, he said. Then seeing how I was looking at him, he added, I have an extra bed. No funny business? No funny business, he promised. He paid the check and we left. His apartment was a tiny one-bedroom unit with a dirty kitchen and a green, moldy-looking rug. The living room was neat and sterile. There was a plain brown couch that turned into a bed. I asked him for something to sleep in, and I plopped down into the bed. He kept talking, but I closed my eyes and pretended to sleep. After a while, he went into his bedroom and shut off the light. I woke up during the night to go to the bathroom, stumbling around, disoriented, until I finally found it. When I came out of the bathroom, I went into the kitchen for some water. While I was there, the guy came in. His face was all puffed up and red. What are you looking for? Some water. Oh, no, you're not, 
he screeched. You've been creeping around this house looking for something. What? I asked. You're crazy. Oh, no, my dear. That's what they want me to think. I'm not crazy in the least. What were you looking for? Who sent you? You didn't find anything, did you? Well, you can tell them. I haven't invented anything else for them to steal. I don't know what you're talking about. Nobody sent me no place, and I wasn't looking for anything. Oh, no. You were just going for a little moonlight stroll. Do you think I'm some kind of fool? I took you in off the street, out of kindness, and here you try and deceive me. Oh, they really fooled me this time. I never thought they'd send a nigger, a nigger spy. Your mama is a nigger, I told him, and you're a crazy son of a bitch. I threw on my clothes as I cursed him out. Spy, spy, he kept saying. Your mother is a spy and you can drop dead as far as I'm concerned. I slammed the door and walked out into the early morning. The sun was beginning to come up. I walked until I found a drugstore open and ordered a tea and an English muffin. I bought a toothbrush, toothpaste, and some makeup so that I would look older. I was going to get a job if it killed me. I got my suitcase, found a bathroom to wash up in, changed clothes, and checked the suitcase again. I bought a couple of newspapers. This time, I was going to be systematic about it. I saw an ad for a waitress and counter girl. That was something I knew I could do. The place was in downtown Brooklyn. I hopped on the first train in that direction and got there at about 8.30 in the morning. The cafeteria was in a factory building and was solely for the factory workers. The manager had black and white hair and was big, fat, and sloppy. He wasn't so anxious to hire me at first, so I told him my sob story about coming from down south to help my mother who was in the hospital and that I needed a job as soon as possible. Finally, after looking me up and down, he hired me and said I could start right then and there. I was grinning from ear to ear. I was supposed to spend the morning making salads and sandwiches and other things for lunchtime, but around 10 o'clock, all these men started coming for coffee break. The manager had me running around like crazy, toasting bread, buttering buns, and getting the men their orders. Move faster, move faster, he kept telling me. Every time he told me to move faster, I tried until it seemed that it wasn't humanly possible for anyone to have moved faster. Then I noticed he was always brushing against me. His hands were always accidentally touching my behind. I'd move his hand away, but that only seemed to make him bolder. Every time I bent over to get something out of the freezer or off the food shelves, he would try to slide his hand up my dress. After a while, I began slapping his hands away. This, too, seemed to make him bolder. Finally, I told him in a nice, quiet voice, Would you please keep your hands off me? Would you keep them to yourself? What are you talking about? He said, acting surprised. I ain't done nothing to you. As the day wore on, he accelerated his shouting at me. Can't you move any faster? He would yell. Get that lead out of your ass. He stopped putting his hands on me for a while, but in about an hour, he was right back to his old tricks. He acted like it was some kind of joke or something. I didn't think it was funny worth a damn. Lunchtime was super busy, and I was moving super fast. After lunch, we started getting ready for afternoon coffee break, and after that, we started getting ready for dinner. Dinner was from 4.30 to 6.30, and 7 o'clock was quitting time. When dinner time came, I was tired and miserable. I needed the job desperately, but the manager was driving me wild, putting his hands all over me. When I told him to stop, he would grin, throw his hands in the air, and say, What am I doing? What am I doing? Then he started a new trick. He'd pull the elastic of my panties through my uniform and let it pop like a rubber band. Stop it, I yelled. Just stop it. 
stop what? What am I doing? By the time dinner was over, I knew I couldn't take it anymore. Bad as I needed the job, I couldn't take that big fat pig's hands all over me. Just before I was ready to go home, I told him, look, if you can't keep your hands to yourself, I'll quit. I can't take it anymore. What do you mean you'll quit? You're fired. You got lead in your ass and you don't know how to treat your boss. Now get the hell out of here. Just give me my money and I will. I ain't gonna give you shit because you ain't did shit. Look, mister, you gonna pay me some money. I worked hard and I want my money. Come back at the end of the week. No, I want my money now. I need it now. You ain't get nothing now, I told you. Come back at the end of the week. No, you're giving me my money now. I want my money. Well, you ain't getting it. I'll call the cops on you, I bluffed. I'll call the cops on you, he said, if you don't get your ass out of here. You better give me my money, I repeated, looking wild and about ready to jump out a real bag. Some people from the factory came in and stood at the back of the cafeteria, looking. Keep your voice down, he said, acting like he was going to be cooperative and pay me. I'll tell you what, you come in the back with me now, and I'll pay you for an extra day. I'll even let you keep your job, and if you're good, I'll even give you a little extra change. I'm not going any damn where with you. Just give me my money. Now, why do you want to be like that? He asked, putting his hand on my shoulder. I was hot and fit to be tied. Get your hands off me, I yelled. You don't want anybody to know what kind of a dog you are. Well, I'm going to tell everybody. If you don't give me my money, I'm going to make you wish you had. I'm going to tell everybody what you are. I started to walk to where people were working in the factory part. All right, all right, he said. Here's your goddamn money. Just get the hell out of here. The people who had been standing in the back moved up closer to see what was going on. The man went to the register and counted out my money. I was dead tired and felt like a fool. But at the same time, I felt kind of good inside. I was still in the same boat, but I was $13 richer and had enough self-respect not to let any old lecherous white man feel up and down my body. Black self-respect. Black self-respect. Shout to Dr. Welsing. Context of white supremacy. Uh, we are right at the beginning of chapter six. Or, yeah, right at the early part of uh, chapter six. That's what we'll be picking up at uh, when we come back uh, for the second audio segment. Anywho, if you would like to participate, any thoughts to share uh, on what you have heard thus far, the number to dial 760-569-7676. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. That number again, 760-569-7676. The code is 564-943-POUND. Press star six if you would like to participate. 
uh, for folks listening in, if you would like to use the free flash phone, uh, it should be linked at Black Talk Radio Network. Uh, if you can't access the link, uh, you can put in the URL. It's tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Tiny, T-I-N-Y dot C-C forward slash one race. And that is the number one. Once you put in that address, click the link on the left side of the page. It's at the bottom. Uh, It says free flash phone. When you do so, it will open a tiny window on your screen. The top line, it is a drop down menu. Select the number that I just gave out. 760-569-7676. Seven, six. The next line, it will ask for the code. That code again is five, six, four, nine, four, three. And then the final line, it'll ask for a name. You can put in a nickname, press random keys. Uh, if you're comfortable with your real name, that's fine too. Once you get all that entered, uh, you should uh, just be able to click, click the green button. You'll see it at the bottom. It'll connect you to the program. You should be able to hear us live. Uh, It's the same procedure if you would like to participate. You'll see the dial pad on your screen. Press star six. When you do so, you'll hear the audio prompt. Press the number one and we will get you on the line. Looking forward to hearing uh, feedback, thoughts from the folks who dialed in. Everybody who has a hand up. Uh, Your line should be open. Feel free to chime in. Yes, may I be heard? Yes, sir. Uh, Greetings, Gus. Greetings to the regular callers and the new callers. Uh, This is Demry Four here. If we are truly in a system of white supremacy, and I believe we are. And I think all the callers on the line share this belief. Then we know that sexual relations between whites and non-whites should be avoided until a system of white supremacy is eliminated. On page uh, 112, <clears throat> uh, reasons were given for a preference of white women by black men. Number one, white women are sweeter. Number two, uh, black women are evil. Uh, Mr. Demery, uh, I think you have hopped ahead of us. (laughs) Oh, we're ahead? Okay. Sorry about that. Okay. Uh, uh, There is uh, a persistent effort to refer to non-whites by their slave names. Even when years have passed and people are known by their new uh, assumed names, as Asada Shakur is constantly referred to as Joanne Chesmar. Although she's been divorced from Louis Chesmar uh, since 1970. And they won't have married for about three years. Uh, Jewish people changed their names 
to names that sounded more Aryan, but you don't hear them being referred by their previous names. Also, uh, at the tender age of 24, uh, between 1971 and 73, the FBI, Co-Intel Pro, and the local law enforcement agency harassed, criminalized, created lies, defamed, and intimidated Ms. Shakur, along with other members of her family. And uh, during greater confinement, white people used informants to gather information. They moved Asada several times so as to make it difficult for her to prepare a defense. And they withheld discovery and disrespected our lawyer counsel. Ashara's rights were curtailed in prison. All but her basic human rights were denied. And an inmate tells her that she couldn't believe she was so small. You're just a little thing. All the pictures I saw of you made you look bigger and blacker. And I think that that's using the media to portray uh, a more menacing image of Ms. Shakur. And it's done over and over again. It was did, it was done to uh, O.J. Simpson also. There were, uh, even her First Amendment rights were curtailed in the so-called court of law. Uh, she mentioned the Black Liberation Army. You know, it was written that she was uh, labeled as a leader in the Black Liberation Army. I guess the Black Liberation Army was a sort of a, a federation or a loosely decentralized federation that supported an armed, armed struggle. Uh, uh, that was, I don't want to get ahead of myself here, but uh, She showed that she had a poor understanding of the law. I thought that that was a bad move when she fired uh, her aunt, Evelyn. Uh, at that point, you know, she was in a serious dire strait uh, with a, a lack of financial resources. And I just thought it probably wasn't a wise choice to uh, fire on. And I briefly, uh, lastly, I'd like to speak on page, at the bottom of page 93 and the top of page 94, where she said black people are generally not as brainwashed as white people when it comes to the so-called system of justice. I think that might be a uh, a gross miscalculation. 
And on page 101, a white guy with bumps on his face offered her a place to stay. And then uh, said he never thought they'd send a nigger, a nigger spot. So trusting white people and calling them crazy when uh, I don't think it's crazy at all. I think it's just a common case of practicing racism, just like the white man she was working for that expected her to sleep with her to have a job. But I think she showed codification when she asked for her pay that if she was fired and threatened to bad mouth his business. I'll mute my line and get somebody up to do it. up your line should be open feel free well i see other hands and folks aren't talking not sure what that is uh what that is all about, at any rate, uh, if other folks have, uh, if you do not have a hand up and you have comments you would like to share, uh, feel free and uh, we can make time to hear your commentary as well. Uh, some of the things that uh, stood out uh, that I thought were important, uh, we had been talking before frequently, almost daily, it felt like, about state-sanctioned uh, sexual violence against black people. Uh, I think you got another example that of that. Uh, this week with the uh, strip searches uh, where uh, they're being quote-unquote finger-fucked and just the the whole ugly grotesqueness uh, of it all, I think that would definitely qualify at least for me uh, for state-sanctioned sexual terrorism. Um, She was talking about the black guards and i was curious about that i I, i've read this book before i just don't remember all the total details details but uh i was curious to see if she was going to uh offer up any commentary on the black guards and i I thought that was so codified where she said that you know you could talk to them about things and they were black but you know once they began speaking you might be confused but she said that's another story back to the problem (laughs) the problem is white people i thought that was uh fantastically codified right there as well uh i really appreciated it when uh, she was being relocated to rikers and the guard said this is your new home and she said this will never be my home and that's right uh in codification uh where mr fuller talks about a home would be a place of justice. I think this even came up last week. One of our female callers uh, pointed that out. Um, It even reminded me when she kept talking about, and I know we talked about this from last week as well, the intense number of black people that end up being in greater confinement. Uh, It reminded me in the past 10 days, they had a news clip. Chicago has been in the the news uh, a lot, particularly their police department uh, their incarceration, but they had a group from South Africa that was visiting Illinois and they went for whatever reason, I guess part of their visit uh, entailed visiting 
uh, a site of greater confinement, uh, a prison. And once they finished the tour, they said, oh, okay, where is your white prison? We've seen the black one. Where is the white one? And, you know, they, they commented about these are these are folks from South Africa who have come here. And this is this is what they think. Uh, we have jails for black people and somewhere there's a jail for white people. That that seemed to be the case uh, in the narrative she told uh, this week. Also, uh, that dislocation, that's purposeful. I think Mr. Demery Ford touched on that uh, being same thing they do even when you are not in greater confinement dislocation. Got to keep black people on the move, whether it's taking your property or oh, we'll put you in this uh, this cage for, you know, a year, two years, and then oh, we'll move you. Don't want you to get it too comfortable. Oh, Got to move you again. I said that's in uh, Picking Cotton, the book where the black male in North Carolina, he had been incarcerated unjustly for about 10, 11 years, excuse me, uh, and they kept moving him. They eventually even moved him out of state uh, so that he couldn't have contact with his family members and friends. He was way far away from home, done deliberately. Um, the super predator uh, commentary, I think Mr. Demery Ford covered that. I uh, thought that was quite profound, done consistently, uh, as he said. In fact, they, they just had a report. I was trying to find it on Democracy Now!, but uh, it was this was not like the crux of the conversation. This was just like an aside uh, mentioned in like a 15-minute dialogue, but they had a black male uh, on Democracy Now!, I think this was towards the end of 2014, and he was talking about this, how this is, they, they've got research on this, this black people are super predators. They're like 5,000 pounds, impervious to bullets, can, you know, huff and puff and knock down a whole town. Uh, and so we have to shoot them 137 times. We have to choke them to death because, you know, they're just, they're just not human. Uh, and the same thing, uh, great, great uh, illustration in the text this week as well. Um, I also... I was going to ask, but people are, I don't know, they have hands up, but they're not chatting. So it's difficult to, to query, uh, any of the folks that are, that are with us that have a hand up, y'all have anything to share? You all in a noisy spot. Did you have anything you wanted to share? Hey, can I be heard? Yes, sir. Thomas Smith, New York. Um, good evening to you. Greeting to all the callers. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, you know, we turned in the Hulk Hogan all of a sudden, you know, we turned it to, to a monster. Um, I just wanted to make a comment, man. Um, you went on that show with um, the confused black victim, um, Mr. Valentine, I think. Um, you, you know what I'm talking about, right? That's the show you went on? Mr. Peterson? Peterson, okay, Mr. Peterson. And he had a report about um, rape and said it was like 59,000 or something black people that rape white people and zero whites that rape black. Wasn't that right? You said something like that? You're correct. That's it, and pretty much. Yeah, I mean, then I hear her part here, and I say, you know, you know, it's, it's a lot of different definitions of race, you know. I mean, these people are in a position of power, in a position to, 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 to ruin your life, you know. Here you have this young girl working at a restaurant. I mean, if she slept with him, that's rape, you know. Like, they don't count all of that, you know, and... Maybe that's why they have zero, you know, they perfected it to, yeah, you want your job, you want to go home and feed your kids, you know, you know, be real quick, you know, come to the back office, you know. Um, that, that That's, you know, pretty much the only comment I wanted to say other than the fact that um, they, they've broken every constitutional law that is so far um, in her case and, you know, um, her pride telling her, 
And, um, you know, that's about it. Thank you. have commentary, any of the folks uh, listening in before we push off to uh, next audio segment, any other comments folks want to get in? Um, good evening, everyone. Good evening uh, to Gus and all the other callers. It's Carmen. And let's see. What Mr. Dimley for um, brought out about white people being insistent that you keep your slave name. I mean, it's just, I've seen that. I've seen that. And and that diminishes you. It really does. I mean, that, having that slave name for all of us, is, it really takes a psychological toll. I think I've said as much as in public, and, and no one disagreed with me. The white people I was talking to, they, they did not disagree with me. I said, God, who knows what my name is. So, um, and also, I think that um, uh, Mr. I'm, Abu Jamal, Mr. Abu Jamal, when he was speaking earlier, he said that uh, um, that she had a she had a bounty put out on her. That's not a bounty, you know. When it's when you're wanted, dead or alive, shoot on sight, killed, that's a death warrant. She said it better earlier. She had a death warrant put out on her, not a bounty. That just you know, that's just you know, that makes it sound kind of, you know, not so awful. But, uh, I mean, it is no different than somebody saying, you're going to be executed on Thursday. It is a death warrant. And, you know, I've had that conversation with white people saying, like, listen, you know, you would be really upset if I put a death warrant out on your grandmother now, wouldn't you? And it was just, you know, you say things and you watch that they just can't, <laughs> they, just, they just can't process those things. They simply can't. But he, he didn't refer to that correctly. And then second, she said, oh, you know, I should get a, what did she say, a Nobel Prize. Now, Nobel Prizes are only for people who uh, propose things that, uh, strategies that do not work against white supremacy. She would, she would never get a Nobel Prize. She has to have a strategy of nonviolence and forgiveness and bringing us all together, and then you can have a Nobel Prize. Um let me see. I think was it her aunt Evelyn Williams? One of them referred to the judge in New York as a dirty dog. Now I have heard relatives, older relatives, female relatives, call white men dirty dogs, dirty dogs, dirty dogs. I don't think you hear that anymore. I think it's black people who use the phrase dogs, and they refer to themselves. But originally. Dirty dogs, you know, like a few generations back, that was always white men. Dirty dogs, dirty dogs. But somehow they've managed to flip that script, too, and we refer to ourselves as dirty dogs. Um, the last thing is uh, I agree with her. I detest those New York winters. I detest those New York winters. They are awful. So um, that's about it. Nothing profound. I can add real quick. Uh, I agree, man. That slave name thing is crazy. It, it, 
they don't like you to change their name unless, you know, you're changing it to entertain them. You know, your name is, you know, Sean, and you change your name to Jay-Z. That's cool. You know, they ain't going to call you Sean. Hey, Jay, you know, but, you know, if you say your name's Malik, Shabazz, or something, you know, it's going to be like, nah. Also, uh, I'd like to ask a question. Uh, does anyone else uh, think that all those questions that the women were asking her concerning uh, her case, it seems a little odd. When, I mean, if you just meet someone, because the way I understand, if you're in jail or prison, Everybody is innocent, you know. So you don't want to give up any more information than you have to because it may be an informant, it may be a, a stool pigeon, or you know, however they, whatever they call it now. Uh, and then they'll intentionally put someone in the cell with you hoping that you will reveal something that can be used against you in a court of law later on. So I thought that the way she described them, uh, first as being passion, you know, which, you know, you may think gray looking or ashy or whatever, but it also uh, is defined as, you know, looking lost or in fear, or looking ill, and then uh, asking all of these questions and not really offering any information that may be useful. I was just wondering if they tried to that that was uh, hard. May I add one more thing? On to Mr. Demery's question, or did you just have something unrelated you wanted to share? <laughs> no, it was related. Um, she she said that um that brief brief walk where she received some sunshine was it was just you know it was just it was you know it was just incredible for her, and I think that. I noticed that, that, well, our sheriff is trying to build a new jail, and it has one of those port share things so that you never actually, you just go from the jail to a box stand bus to another prison, and you never see and feel the sun. I mean, I think that's the design now, that you should never see and feel the sun. I mean, when you have to be transported, it's like straight to a garage, straight underneath, it's just, I think that's something that they get, I guess they do deliberately. I never thought about that. But, you know, the sun is very, it, it, it just changes things. And I think that they deliberately keep them from having sun. And that's why they have these elaborate uh, things for transporting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I would prefer if someone asks a question, if they could get their question responded to first before we move off to other topics. But right oh. on. Um, so Mr. Demery's question was, uh, you know, we'll, we'll live. Um, Mr. Demery's question was, uh, uh, the, did anybody think it was curious or 
maybe even suspicious. Um, her kind of being asked these questions about her case uh, by other inmates, uh, black inmates, um, after she's, you know, kind of first meeting them. Uh, did anybody think, you know, there could have been anything uh, devious about that? I didn't until he said it. And, um, you know, I thought it was like one of those situations where they're trying to weed you out, you know, trying to see what you're all about, you know, what you're here for, you know. But, but um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you definitely have to remain codified in that situation because, I mean, I can see them using that as, uh, you know, you say what you did, and then that person ends up testifying against you in court. And you're like, man, you know, yeah, I can see that definitely being a tactic they were using. I didn't think about that until he, um, until he um, just said it, and that I could definitely put that past me. Wouldn't put it past them. I mean, uh, particularly at this time, uh, with the stature that she had, still has, but certainly at this time, uh, it would uh, it would seem like a reasonable thing for racists to do uh, to see, hey, we'll knock some of your sentence down, or you know, whatever. They have a, vari- a variety of ways of coercing uh, behavior from victims of racism. Um, did anybody? Uh, if, if anybody had anything else they want to share on Mr. Demers, that's fine too. You can include that. I was just going to say, did anybody think anything of this uh, moment when they're in court and she keeps uh, getting excused because uh, they're, you know, jumping up to tell the jury how they're being abused and mistreated. And when she's taken away, uh, they bring in this white chick, Natalie Rosenstein. And she's like, you know, we got, we didn't move fast enough. So they arrested us. And, you know, I can't believe, did, did anybody, did that strike anybody's being significant? That little short scene? Yep. What was significant about it? Well, I just don't, I mean, the last person the judge is going to put in jail are the white people. I mean, that's, that's the last person they're going to put Even if they're jumping up and down and screaming and yelling, you know, you, you filthy, you filthy, whatever, he's not going to put them in jail when he has a whole bunch of black people in the room to choose from. That's, that doesn't even make any sense. But, yeah, I was suspicious of her just because the white people wound up there, and I thought that they may have been, you know, plans. But I, I wasn't, um, I didn't pick up on what Mr. Dimory Foy had said earlier because I was trying to do two things at once, and I lost the conversation, the thread of it. I apologize. Um, but no, I, I was very suspicious when, when the white person came in there being so friendly and, you know, and giving all the compliments. You're so special. We're so glad to meet you. My goodness, you're awesome. You know, we're just here and on your side, and we're even in jail for you. Look how wonderful we are, you know. Just go ahead and open up to us. I'm surprised she didn't say anything about it. White allies, you know, they always have to say one, you know, I'm on your side. I think that's a definitely tactic, and I think that's the same people that have probably come out with the white privilege for. I, I think that uh, white people understand that non-whites are looking for validation, and so they use that to uh, cozy up to you so that you may uh, slip and start to trust them a little more than what you should. So that uh, tactic, you know, especially uh, like the, like Carmen said, uh, 
you know, white women are the most under-prosecuted people in the United States. So it just seems strange that she would be thrown in jail, you know, just uh, because she didn't move fast enough. And then she gets in there and tells her whole name. And then uh, I thought, I think she was just looking for information personally myself. me of that moment with uh, Minister Malcolm X from our previous uh, reading, uh, the white girl who wanted to do something and he felt bad. He didn't want to hurt her feelings and then felt bad about what he had said to her. Same type of, uh, same type of effect uh, on victims. Um, any, any thoughts on the uh, steamy prison romance and the possibility of a pregnancy uh, behind bars? I was shocked mm-hmm. that they let them um, go through with that. I, I didn't think that was something that they would um, have time alone to do something um, sexual. So I, I'm really shocked. I'm almost wondering, if, are, they, are they doing that on purpose? Yes, I, I thought that that was uh, odd also. It would never happen. Nowadays, uh, with with cameras everywhere, and the fact that they would never leave uh, two inmates, especially the opposite sex, in a room alone, and then close the door and lock it. Come on! <laughs> and then they were looking forward to uh, the next meeting, and they were postponing and extending. You know, and then. I mean, if I'm looking at, this is just me personally, but, you know, I'm uh, 60 years old. And I I mean, but if you are confined, Access code accepted. This conference is being recorded. Q&A session started. He was probably a young man. If they get a chance to, you know, uh, get a quickie, I mean, you know, why not? They they gave him the opportunity. Mm. I'm sorry. Oh no, I was just gonna uh, go on topic, but the, when they um did, did they say they put the 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 lawyer in um held up for contempt for fifteen days in a maximum security prison like years after the trial? I thought it was ten days, but yes, they held her in contempt. Oh, ten days. Yeah. Yes, sir. Wow. In maximum security, yeah. And that was a black. That was her cousin, right? Aunt. Aunt. Yes. That's that's serious, man. I. Wow. Well, um, hmm. <sighs> she's in her twenties. Wow. You know they had to know that was going to happen. So yeah, they were bugged. And I mean, if if I were, gosh, 
Yeah, I mean, you, you, you know that's going to happen. Sex act at, at the most, even if you don't know what you're doing, even if you're not prepared, it's going to take 12 minutes. So, um, mm, yeah, that was, they were bugged. They were bugged. And they, I guess they were trying to get her to create a relationship so that they could use that as leverage because, you know, she's pretty independent. I mean, it's like, you know, let's see if we can create this relationship, use that as leverage. Or maybe he was... Maybe, maybe I don't know. Maybe he was just trying to get her to speak or talk about something. Who knows? Who knows what what what's happening on his end? But um, I'm intensely suspicious. So, mm, yeah, she's definitely bugged. And who knows what's happening on his end and what he was trying to do? And as far as having a baby in prison, whether or not it's still her choice. Um, yeah, yeah. So, oh, I, I. I guess this is tangential also, but this is tangential, so forget about it. If other folks uh, listening in have anything they want to add before we get to the second audio segment, uh, we have about 10 minutes. If there's anything else uh, you want to share based on what you've heard, either from listeners or myself, uh, things that stood out from the book, if there's anything that we haven't uh, covered. Um, did y'all have any thoughts when she said uh, she was kind of hoping that the black jurors would, you know, understand, be less confused and do the correct thing, kind of advocate for her uh, on the jury? What did you all think about her assertion that black people aren't as brainwashed as white people about what's really happening? Y'all think that's accurate? What well, well, she said, she said black people are as brainless about the system of justice in the United States. Not kind of what's happening, but what happens when you're dealing with, quote unquote, the justice system. I, I don't think black people are that brainwashed. I mean, I... Most, a lot of them are. I mean, a lot of them are, but, but uh, certainly not as, as high in percentage as white people. I thought it, I thought it was uh, strange that she would make a statement like that. And she was actually held for four years without even being uh, tried or convicted, you know, I mean, uh, the the justice system uh, was making obvious uh, constitutional errors. Uh, the judge was disrespectful to her counsel. Uh, they wouldn't let her speak. Her First Amendment rights were denied her. I mean, uh, I think she was brainwashed, you know, thinking that she could, uh, telling the lawyer to object to something, and you you being railroad. <laughs> what what can your lawyer do? You sitting in there, you watching it. They they, they have flimsy evidence, and you, and you looking at life in prison behind it, and you think that these uh, lawyers can do something for you. I, I don't know. I I think that that was an incorrect statement, actually. And I think that, you know, she was young, and she admitted that she didn't know much about the law. 
So, uh, you know, I think uh, uh, white people uh, get a much better deal with the court system. And their expectations think, are higher. I think I took that um, a comment in a different context than um, just the, um, just the person that I think is Mr. Demery who just spoke. Uh, I think she meant that black people already know that they're going to get railroaded when they go into the system. So in that respect, yeah, they're more they're, they're not going in there googly eyed like, oh, we're going to get justice. I mean, we pretty much know. It's now, what we're ignorant against is the procedures, the, the law, the actual law itself. You know, we don't know that. But I think, for the most part, everyone black knows that that system is not good for us. I mean, every time we go in here, it, it, it doesn't turn out good for us. I think that's the perspective that she was saying. Hmm. I, I, I will tell you, ha- before getting into a courtroom, I mean, you know white people are bad, and you know the justice system is, is incorrect, and, but um, until you actually see it and hit that wall of trauma for yourself and go, I can't believe this is, this is how they do it. I can't believe it. You know, I don't, um, I don't think until you actually hit that wall and understand just how corrupt that system is that uh, I think you just have to be in the room and see it. You hold some, you, you hold some hope that, you know, well, gosh, surely some justice will win out in the end. There must be some glimmer of something, but there's nothing there. There's nothing. It's, it's just a, a wall of injustice that, is, that will floor anyone. Can I be heard? Can I be heard? Hi. Talking to you. Okay. Um, yesterday, well, not yesterday, but at work, I was listening to the archives, and us in law. I mean, we, we. I mean, me. I'm a non-white black person. I don't. I never trust the police, or nothing like that. Never have. Um, have me and my family had run-ins with them. They're horrible. And like Karma was saying, when you get it, when you actually get into the to the court, you're like, wow. But going back to that archive that I was listening to Alan Iverson on that, it seems like the way they were talking, he didn't really think that they were going to take it as far as they did. I don't know if anybody on the line listened to that, but it seems like how he was talking, he was like, no, nah, it's not going to go as far as it went. Not getting off the subject of the book, I'm just making a comparison how maybe we don't think the law is, you know, or the court systems are that bad until you actually have to be in it and you you up against it.
just for the quote, in case anybody, to make sure that they were clear, the quote, it reads, uh, and this is in the context, I'll even go back and give a little bit more so you get the full uh, context. Uh, the judge raved and ranted, the pigs barked like vicious dogs, the witnesses lied like crazy, the jurors who had been picked solely by the prosecution looked and listened expressionlessly. There were a couple of black jurors, and although we had little hope we would be acquitted, we placed the microscopic hope we did have in the black jurors. Even though we had presented no defense, had not participated in the trial, we thought that there was a slim chance they might not go along with the program. Black people are generally not as brainwashed as white people when it comes to the so-called system of justice. Anybody want to switch sides based on that? Any more clarity? Yeah, that's that's a little clear because if if you had I think the if you had just one black person, you know, that don't want to go along with the program, you know, they can get it get a mistrial. And I know when I was called for jury duty, that's the main thing that I was going for. I wanted to go because uh, I may be the only hope that a black person has for not spending a, a great deal of time in great confinement. And it worked too. You know, it worked for them. You know, that black girl hung it up. And, um, it went right back to trial, but I mean, it worked for him. Yeah, I think that extra contact and she did she did even say that it was a slim chance so even she was not like she was banking that you know absolutely we can we can predict that this one black juror is gonna you know hold up the process for us um or i guess it was a couple more than one two two black jurors um but yeah that that i i still <laughs> pause like man i don't know but but she did say it was a slim chance the the we have been highly victimized i can i'll just pause there uh anywho um let me see make sure that i covered everything i didn't miss any notes that passage about being in solitary confinement let me make sure i thought that was really important as well uh she was talking about uh oh, okay here we go um, one of the first things that Kamau and I had discussed was Islam. He had been a Muslim for some time and was deep into it. He was seriously trying to convince me to convert and become a practicing active Muslim. I had always said that if I had had any religion, it was Islam, but I had never practiced it. Because of Elijah Muhammad and Malcolm X, the Muslim influ influence over our struggle has been very strong, but it had always been difficult for me to accept the idea of an all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God. And I reasoned, how could I be expected to love and worship a God whose master plan included the enslavement, torture, and murder of black people? Thoughts?
club is better, no better than that. That's just worried how you get ready. Um, yeah, that's always my argument with my family members and other people who are highly religious. You know, these are just the same religion as the people that enslaved us class. And um, I just could never do it. You know, I can't do it. You know, I just don't see how someone else can. And um, I mean, there's plenty of black guys out there, more, way more than enough. One or two white guys they got. So I mean, that that's all I have to say about that. But that was very eloquently worded. Have to worry about. And it's strange how they go from Christianity to Islam. I'm, I don't understand that. They trade the white guy for the Arab guy. I don't get it. I think that she was right on when she uh, could not accept the idea of an all-powerful, all-seeing, all-knowing God, you know, allowing, you know, in his master plan, the enslavement and torture and murder of black people. That was, that's, that's really good. You know, and that would, that actually should uh, hinder um, a lot of black people from entering in these different types of religions, you know, but uh, it, it, it doesn't seem to, and it takes a great deal of, of study and, and thought before you can, uh, you know, get through and debrief yourself from the uh, religious brainwashing that you uh, experience in your lifetime since you were very young. About this, because I think uh, a lot of times when I hear people get really excited, enthusiastic about bashing religion, or at least the way that religion has been used uh, under the religion of white supremacy, um, that they they speak as though there have not been a large number of black people who have like totally indicted, quote unquote, Christianity uh, and the way that religion has been used. I mean, we've read two consecutive uh, just with this book. And I think even over the history of our book uh, study session, Dr. Marimba Ani as well uh, comes to mind, who had some serious questions. I think uh, Richard Williams, uh, even though he did, you know, his faith was there, but I think he had some questions as well. I think we've we've read quite a few people uh, over the years who've had, you know, very eloquently laid out the logic behind questioning all of this in a system of white supremacy and and even folks that we haven't read, Dr. Cambon uh, and, and even one of our former guests is God, a white racist. There have been there's a large body of scholarship of black people who have, you know, come to the same logical, reasonable uh, conclusion. Uh, and I think racists just in the same way that racists uh, largely obscure Asada Shakur. So a lot of people don't, you know, necessarily know a lot of information, certainly not to the same level that we know of like Rosa Parks or Dr. King. 
uh, the same way that she is obscured, the same way that uh, a Nat Turner or a Mark Essex is obscured since he was mentioned uh, in the book, black people that have been counterviolent and said some white people need to die for racism to end and went about the business of making that happen. Those black people get obscured. Uh, I think they also do a great job of obscuring black people who've said, you know, this religion thing is a bunch of hooey and uh, we need to go about getting the logic together to solve this problem. There have been a lot, lot, lot of black people and this Asada Shakur is just one among many. Uh, anything else before we get to the second audio segment? Yeah, I watched the um, I watched the whole thing of the Mark Texas um capture that they got the whole thing on tape on YouTube, man. He was the man. I mean, I wish you, I just wish they made the movie, you know, from a from a you know real black liberation perspective, you know, like made him the hero in the movie. You know, he dies at the end, you know, like um, like how Mark Wahlberg was made out in um in that war movie, you know, of that how they heroized all of those guys, you know. I would love to see that movie. I mean, wish we made our own movies. Have to do it ourselves. They certainly are not in that. I think Asada Shakur touched last week. She spent a lot of time talking about the way that television has been weaponized uh, against us. And I think she was talking about a lot of the older films, Leave it to Beaver and Lassie. I think those are some of the ones that she mentioned from uh, last week, but yeah, they, they certainly are not interested in uh, projecting any images of uh, black liberation, black self-respect, certainly not black people who are about counter-violence, like absolutely not. Um, see anything else? Uh, I guess Evelyn, oh, uh, I can plug documentary if folks want to do some research. I said last week we played the audio clip at the beginning was Gil Noble. And he did a documentary on Asada Shakur. He did many great presentations. Definitely, he's worthy of a program. Black Excellence in Journalism. He did a documentary. It's on YouTube. It's about an hour. I played a segment of it last week at the beginning. Uh, there's also a documentary. Uh, it's called uh, Eyes on the Rainbow. Eyes on the Rainbow. It's such a shame that the uh, LGBT arm of the white supremacy army has hijacked the rainbow symbolism. But at any rate... Um, it's called Eyes uh, on the Rainbow. Uh, it is also on YouTube. It's a little bit more uh, than an hour. You get to see her uh, directly, you know, where she gives uh, more uh, background information. She she affirms uh, in Eyes on the Rainbow, she affirms uh, the just monumental impact that her black grandparents in North Carolina had on her life uh, and the black self-respect and black pride that they transferred to her, that that just had such an enormous impact uh, on her worldview and her behavior and why she did what she did. Uh, she goes into, I mean, talk about black ancestors. Like what she said, she said that in the, I almost played it bad. It was, it was stunning. Like she said, uh, she was talking about all this, the influence of her, her uh, grandparents, black grandparents. And she said uh, she wanted to make her ancestors proud. I've said, wow, that is wow. Uh, if everybody is good, we will go ahead and get to the second audio clip. Uh, if you didn't get to share, we should have time afterwards. Anybody have anything else they want to get in before we proceed?
assume folks are good. Uh, if you didn't get your hand up or had something else, just write it down. Uh, we are at the beginning of chapter six. So we're like, it's like 103. I don't know which version of the book you have. For me, it's like 103. It's right after the scene where she uh, had to fight off this racist brute uh, from trying to sexually molest her. She's she's bought him off, got her money, and she's going about her business. That's what we're picking up at. Uh, second audio segment, we're in chapter six, Context of White Supremacy. I had enough money altogether to rent a cheap hotel room. I got my suitcase and checked into a hotel. I think it was the Hotel Albert. After I had hung up my clothes and taken a shower, I decided to get something to eat. Downstairs in the lobby, there was a big, tall black woman, dressed to kill. She had black hair with silver streaks running through it, long false eyelashes, and a lot of makeup. Well, look at the baby, she said, looking straight at me. Please tell me how you wound up in this joint. Are you straight from Alabama, darling? Where are you going, honey? I just looked at her. Do you speak, darling? Can you talk? Where are you going, honey? I'm going out to eat, I said, a little weary. Where are you going to eat, love? I don't know. Well, come with me, honey. We can eat together. I'm having a starvation attack. I just stood there looking at her. Well, come on, love. You don't want me to die of malnutrition now, do you? Do you like Chinese food? Yes, I told her, wondering why she was taking all of this interest in me, and wondering how she knew I was new at the hotel. We walked around until we came to a Chinese restaurant. The whole time, she talked nonstop. Suddenly, I remembered how little money I had. I had intended to eat a hot dog or something. Look, I told her, I don't have enough money to go in there. This place looks expensive, and I'm kind of on the broke side. Maybe another time I'll come eat with you. Listen, love, she said. I didn't drag you all this way to eat alone. I hate to eat alone, so you're just stuck with my company. It looks like I'm going to have to treat your broke ass to dinner. I was extremely grateful. Miss Shirley, that's what she called herself, was one hell of a talker. She sounded sophisticated and country at the same time. She was from Georgia, but she had been in New York for a long time. She had lived in the village for a long time, too, although she said she was a gypsy. I ordered something like chop suey, the cheapest thing on the menu. What is you trying to do, honey? She said. Make me sick. Look, you sit there with your eyes open and let me do the ordering. She ordered all this stuff, and when it came, we feasted. There was so much, we could barely finish it. That's better, honey. Now mother can join the living. The waiter came and asked if we wanted anything else. If I can't have you, Miss Shirley said with a wink, I'd like the check. The waiter, a tall, thin Chinese man, blushed and hurried away. This is one bold check, I remember thinking. How long is your place rented for? Miss Shirley asked. Until tomorrow. What are you going to do after that? I'll find another job, I told her. Then I told her about my job at the cafeteria. She laughed her head off. Well, honey, she asked me, what in the hell are you running from? Or what in the hell are you running to? I told her my sad tale about my mother in the hospital. Do you actually expect me to believe that mess? I swore up and down that it was true. I ain't no fool, honey, and I've been out in these streets long enough to know that you're running from something. And if you don't want to tell me, that's your business. But I like you, and I'll try to help you if I can. I was grateful, and I didn't know what to say, so I didn't say anything. Look, I got this friend that works on Bleecker Street. 
He wants to take some time off to hang out with his friend, but he doesn't want to lose his job. You could work in his place until he comes back. Fine, I said. I was down for anything. Well, almost. We went to the cafe, and a skinny white dude came up to us. Sit down and rest yourselves. I'll be back in a minute. We sat down at a little round table. You want some espresso? The guy said. Sure, Miss Shirley said. He bought two little cups of black stuff. I took one sip, and I thought I was going to choke. Miss Shirley cracked up. Well, I can see that you're not initiated. I'm going to have to do something about your education. I arranged to take the guy's job for four days, and he showed me what I had to do. If you forget anything or have any questions, ask the sailor, he said, pointing to a man with tattoos up and down his arms. I was to begin work the next afternoon at four. I still didn't know how I was going to pay my rent at the hotel for the next few days because I wouldn't be paid for my work at the cafe until the guy came back from his vacation. I told Miss Shirley what I was thinking. I'll talk to Freddie, she said, and see if he'll let my good friend have a little credit. If not, you can come up to my place and sleep on the floor. We went back to the hotel and found Freddie. He didn't want to give me any credit. Miss Shirley kept haggling. How much do you have? She asked me. Fifteen dollars? Well, give me ten, and I'll lend you the rest so you can rent a room for a week. I gave her the money, and Freddie told me I had to move to another room, which was fine with me. The room was tiny, but at least it had a bathroom, and I had somewhere to stay for the rest of the week. I was grateful as hell for Miss Shirley. Well, she told me, you get a good night's sleep. Mother has got work to do. Where do you work? Anywhere I have to, she said. Anywhere I can. I was dog-tired, and the bed was like an oasis. I woke up the next afternoon. It was almost one o'clock. I took a shower, I got dressed, and went to find something to eat. Then I went back to the hotel and knocked on Miss Shirley's door. She opened the door with a razor in her hand. I almost fainted. She was shaving her face. Miss Shirley was a man. When she saw my reaction, she fell out laughing. You got a lot to learn, sugar. You got a lot to learn. We both sat there, laughing up a storm. Somehow, it was funny as hell. I went to work early that afternoon. The job wasn't bad, and I could eat all I wanted, which meant I didn't have to buy dinner. The tips weren't that much, but I'd be able to live on them until the guy came back. Any black woman, practically anywhere in America, can tell you about being approached, propositioned, and harassed by white men. Many consider all black women potential prostitutes. In the village, this phenomenon was ten times worse than elsewhere. It was almost impossible to go from one corner to the next without some white man hissing at you, following you, or jingling the money in his pockets. One morning in the park, I met a couple, about my age from Harlem, who had run away from home and were now living in a room in the village. I told them that I had run away too, and we became instant comrades. We got into a discussion about how white men are always approaching black women. Yeah, they giggled, but we got something for their ass. Yeah, I asked. Yeah, we fix them right up. How? I asked. They told me. The Murphy game was their game. They told me how it worked, and I fell out laughing. I thought it was a brilliant scheme. You want to try it? I know them old fairs dig you. I was anxious to try this new scheme because it was big money, and I would be able to pay Miss Shirley back and get a real place of my own. The first night, after my job was over, I met Pat and Ronnie in the park. Pat and I were the bait, and Ronnie was the protection. We were all to walk separately on different sides of the streets so that we could see each other. 
I had dressed up and put on makeup to look older. About five minutes after we started walking, a white man came up to me. He said he liked the way I walked and wanted to take me someplace. I'm on my way to a party, I told him. It's going to be a real hot party. Yeah, what kind of party is it going to be? What kind of party would you like it to be? A party for two, he said. I know a place where they've got some very nice private rooms and they're not too expensive. It's a private club. You've got to join first. How much does it cost? Fifteen for the room, fifteen to join the club, and fifteen for the babysitter. You don't look old enough to have a kid. The babysitter is for my little sister. We argued about the price. He thought it was too high. I kept telling him how he was getting a real deal and that, once he joined, he would be a member for a year and could go there any time he wanted and get some action. Finally, he agreed to pay. When we got to the building, I told him to give me the money so I could go upstairs and pay the people. By the way, I said, would you tell me what kind of work you do? These people are very particular about who joins their club. I work for a bank. I could see from his face he was lying. I'll be right back. Don't you go nowhere. I ran upstairs and opened the door to the roof. Carefully, I closed it behind me. Then I went over about ten roofs until I came to the one I was supposed to come down from. I tried the door. It wouldn't budge. Somebody had locked it. I went to the next roof. Luckily, the door opened. I ran down the stairs and came out around the corner from where the man was standing. Hurriedly, I walked to where I was supposed to meet Pat and Ronnie. How'd it go? They asked. Easy as pie, I answered. Okay, let's do another one. I was scared to try another one because I was scared I would run into the man again. We can go up around 14th Street. We've got another building staked out around there. Okay, I told them, but let's check it out first. I explained about the door that wouldn't open. We got to the new place, checked it out, and then went to 14th Street. In a matter of 20 minutes, Pat and I each caught a fish. I was worried to death we would bump into each other. I rushed my man to the building, got the money, and hurried to the meeting place. I waited and waited. It seemed like an eternity until they came. Pat had seen me with my man and had the good sense to go to a different building than the one I took my man to. We were all in high spirits. See how easy it is? Pat asked me. Yeah, it's a breeze. We split up the money. We had each made $45. I rushed back to the hotel. Miss Shirley was there and we went up to her room for a drink. I felt like a millionaire. I had the money I had made working at the cafe plus $45. I whipped out my bankroll and paid Miss Shirley back. Now, girl, I know you ain't got no rich uncle. How'd you get all the money? I told her everything. I thought I was so slick. Girl, is you crazy? Do you know what one of these men will do to you if they find you in the street? Girl, these people out in this street don't give a damn about you. This street will eat your ass alive, honey. I know what I'm talking about. You done run away, ain't you? Yeah, I told her. I ran away. I knew it all the time. Well, honey, I can't make you go home. If I tried, you'd only run away again. But you're wasting your time and your life out here. These people don't care nothing about you. All they want to do is suck your blood. You a smart girl. What you need to do is go home and finish school. I'm never going home. Well, if you insist on staying out here in these streets, you better start acting like you got some sense. Don't you never let nobody use you and make a fool out of you. What if one of those men had been a crazy man and followed you upstairs? What if the other door had been locked and you hadn't been able to get out? 
Where was your so-called protection? You mean to tell me that you're going to risk your life for $15? Girl, this village ain't nothing to play with. They got some crazy men's around here that is killing up young girls like you. And one of them cuts their titties off. Girl, as far as I can see, that young boy Ronnie don't want to be nothing but a pimp. Hmm. He ain't done one thing to earn that money. You better start to use your head. I could see Miss Shirley knew what she was talking about. But what am I going to do, Miss Shirley? You know how hard it is to find a job. Don't worry, honey. I'll come up with something. The next day, when I went down to the lobby, Freddie was behind the desk. I hear you're looking for a job, he said. "Uh Uh-huh. You know anything about being a barmaid? No, I told him. Well, you go over to this place, Tony's on 3rd Street, and ask for a guy named Chuck. Tell him I sent you. Thanks. Thanks a lot. I went over to Tony's and talked to Chuck. Do you have any openings? I asked him. Sure. We always have openings for foxes like you, he laughed. Do you know the setup? No. $15 a night and you get a quarter for each drink and a dollar for each bottle of champagne. I looked at him blankly. Your job is to sit and look pretty and keep the customers happy and buying. You work from 8 in the evening to 4 in the morning when the place closes. What you do after that is your business. Just don't make any deals on the premises. Yes, I answered warily. Well, then, see you tonight. When I got back to the hotel, I told Miss Shirley about my new job. All right, honey, but you be real careful. There are a whole lot of crazy peoples around here, and you keep looking for a real job so you can go to school at night. Now come on upstairs and let me show you how to put your face on. You look like a two-bit hoe. At ten to eight, I was at Tony's. Chuck was there and introduced me to the barmaid. Her name was Joyce. Come here for a minute, honey, she told me and went to the end of the bar. I followed her. You like whiskey sours? I guess so. I never had one. Whatever you do, don't get drunk. I'm going to make your drinks without the whiskey. If a customer comes in and I know he's the suspicious type, I'll make you a real one. If you want a drink with whiskey in it, just order with your hands folded. There's not too much I can do about the champagne. I'll try to keep pouring it into the man's glass, but it's not too bad, and the bottles are small. Okay, thanks. I went to the bar and sat down. In a few minutes, a couple of white guys came in. They sat two seats down from me and kept looking in my direction. Would you like a drink? One said. Okay, I answered. What are you drinking? A whiskey sour. And so began what seemed like a never-ending parade of whiskeyless whiskey sours. It got so that even the smell of the stuff made me sick. Once in a while, I would ask the barmaid to put some whiskey in one, but I have never been much of a drinker. Most of the customers were white men who were looking for some action. I found most of them to be crude, boring, and creepy. I would sit there, making up different stories to tell them just to keep myself amused. Another object of these stories was to get them to spend as much money as possible. If I thought that the man would go for a sob story and hand over some money, I would tell him a real tearjerker. Other times, I pretended to be a college girl going to NYU. This made them less likely to be bold. When I played a college girl, I usually said that I was a math major, because people never know the first thing about math. One night, after I told this guy my math major story, he asked me some questions about integrals and imaginary numbers. I didn't have the faintest idea what the guy was talking about. It turned out he taught math at NYU. I know you're lying, he told me. Of course I am. Who in the hell was going to be interested in the life of a waitress? The guy broke out laughing. That deserves a drink, he said. Bring the lady another drink. After that, the guy, I called him Mr. Math, came by every so often to hang out. 
He would buy drinks, and we would sit there, cracking jokes. How's your thesis going? He would ask. Fine, I'd answer. I'm doing a chronological study about the social significance of two and two equaling four. I had a few other regulars. Most of them came in to tell me their troubles. They either had wife trouble or job trouble. Some were drunks who just wanted somebody to drink with, and others just liked the challenge of trying to seduce a young girl. A lot of the other girls were prostitutes. The few who weren't were either just out to make some extra money or they were alcoholics. Most of the women were very nice and protective of me. The prostitutes liked me because I was always sending them business and was always discreet about it. Soon, I made friends with the guys in the jazz quarter that worked there regularly. I've always loved jazz, and I would clap and shout and let them know I enjoyed the music. The piano player and I became especially tight. I called him my big brother, and he was very protective of me. When the place closed, he and maybe one or two of the group would walk me home. If it was raining, he would send me home in a cab. Closing time was the roughest time of all. Some of the men thought that buying drinks entitled them to more than conversation, but Chuck was a good bouncer and could spot a problem before it became serious. If a guy was getting out of hand, Chuck would approach him, tell him that I was the sister of one of the guys in the band, and that if he didn't treat me with respect, he would let him have it. At times, some real freaks and weirdos hung out there. There was one guy who had bought the panties of almost every woman who worked at Tony's, paying them each $15. I asked what he did with them. He laughed and told me he hung them on the walls of his apartment. When I told one of the other girls, she laughed. Can you believe that? The guy takes them home and holds them over his nose. He's a sniff freak. But any woman at Tony's had to be careful. Some of the men who came around were real dangerous. One night, when things were slow and there were no customers in the place, the women would tell horror stories about all the crazy men they had run into. I was big for my age, and well-built, but with all the makeup I wore, I could usually pass for 18. I told everybody I was 19. The white people never questioned my age, but the black people would, sooner or later, realize I was younger than I let on. Some of them even guessed I had run away and would take me to the side and encourage me to go home. After a while, all the women who had worked at the place teased me about not having a boyfriend. This girl don't like men, and she don't like women. Here's a girl that lets her fingers do the walking. When they teased me, I wanted to crawl into a crack somewhere and hide. The more embarrassed I became, the more they laughed. A new bass player came to work for the band, and I developed an instant crush on him. I was convinced I was in love. In a short time, everybody knew about my crush. But the bass player paid me no mind at all. I did everything I could to attract his attention, but he just ignored me. Near closing time, his white girlfriend would come, and they would leave together. I hated her. She looked so smug. One weekday night, it was pouring rain outside and the place was empty. The bass player said to me, I'm writing a song for you. You want to hear it? I could have fainted. I was grinning from ear to ear. Yes, I'd like to hear it. Jailbait! The rest of the group chimed in. Jailbait, jailbait, and the whole place cracked up. I could have died right then and there. That was the end of my crush. When I thought about it later, though, it was funny. A lot of black men that I met in the village were hung up on white women. Some of them would come right out and tell you, Man, I can't dig no spade chick. Give me an au fait every day.
When I asked them why, they said white women are sweeter. Black women are evil. White women are more understanding. Black women are more demanding. One of the things that really infuriated me was when they called black women sapphire. You know how you nigger women are. Sapphire. Evil. A lot of these guys would have trampled over my face just to get to a white woman. At times, I really got sick of being around so many grown people. I'd either sneak back into my old neighborhood or hang out with Pat and Ronnie. One night, they were going to a party uptown. I was dying to be with kids my age, so I told Chuck I was taking the night off. When we got to the party, it was dull and tired, so Pat and Ronnie went off to find some reefer. They loved the stuff, but I was scared of it. I waited and waited for them to get back. I started talking to a boy, who seemed really nice, about how dull the party was. He said he knew of a boss party that was going to be happening later. I waited for Pat and Ronnie to come back, but they never did. Why don't you come to the party with me? The boy asked. It's at my house, and I'm sure you'll have a good time. Finally, I said I would go. He seemed nice. He lived in some projects near Spanish Harlem. When we got to his house, no one was there. I started to leave, but he said his friends were all at a ball game, and they would be there afterward. In a little while, the doorbell rang, and sure enough, all these people came in. After a minute, I noticed they were all boys. Excuse me, the boy said. Then they all went into another room for a minute. When they returned, they were whispering and talking under their breaths, and I could tell they were up to something. Where are the girls? I asked. Oh, they're coming. One came and sat next to me. He put his hand on my leg. I moved it away. Come on, baby, why you want to act like that? Come here, man, one of them said. I could sense that something was wrong. I didn't know what they were up to, but I knew they were up to something. I picked up my pocketbook and my sweater. I'll have to be going... No, baby, you ain't going nowhere. I've got to go. I started walking towards the door. One of them grabbed my arm and yanked me away from the door. Sit your ass down, bitch. We got plans for you. I knew it now. They were going to rape me. I had heard people talking about trains, but I had never thought it would happen to me. I sat still for a minute. Then I made a wild break for the door. They tried to grab me, and I fought like hell. The fight didn't last too long, though, because in a minute, they had held me down on the floor. They were pulling up my skirt and taking my blouse off. I cried and screamed. Shut up, bitch, one of them said, slapping my face. I begged them for mercy. I told them I was a virgin. There's always a first time, baby, somebody sneered. I begged and pleaded. I cried and cried. I couldn't believe they could be so heartless. But they were. The boy who brought me there was arguing with another boy about who would be first. I couldn't believe it. It was a nightmare. They were arguing and carrying on as if I wasn't even human, as if I was some kind of thing. I felt so scared and betrayed. I had trusted this boy. The argument between them was heated. I hoped they would fight and kill each other. I kept begging for mercy, pleading with them. They paid me no attention. One of them came over to me as if he felt sorry for me. Don't worry, baby. It won't hurt. You'll see. You'll like it. Okay, I heard the boy who had brought me there first say. You can go first, man. The other boy started toward me. I jumped up and tried to run, but I was cornered. One tried to grab me, and in the process, he knocked over an ashtray. Be careful, man, said the boy whose house it was. My mother will kill me if the house gets messed up. That was my cue. I picked up a vase and threw it at the wall. I picked up a lamp and something else, 
crying and screaming at the same time. You might get me, but I'm going to mess up your mother's house before you do. The boy who was supposed to go first made a leap for me and missed. I kicked over the table and knocked over a plant that was on a stand. Get back! Get back! I screamed. The boy whose house it was grabbed the boy who was supposed to go first. Come on, man. My mother will kill me. Get back. Get back. I screamed. I'm going to throw this lamp straight into that mirror. There was a big mirror hanging behind the couch. Get them out of here. Get get them out of here or I'll fuck this house up. I was shaking and crying, but I was serious as hell. I was going to mess that boy's house up so bad no one would recognize it. Get them out of here. I said, kicking the table over. Come on, the boy said. Y'all gotta get out of here. My mother's gonna have a fit. You crazy bitch, one of them said to me. Come on, let's go. Get him out of here, I screamed at the top of my lungs. That's okay, one of them said. We'll wait for you outside, baby. Slowly, in what seemed like forever, they left. Only the boy who had brought me remained. I could see that he was trying to figure out some way to jump me. Don't come near me. You better stay back. I didn't know what I was going to do next. They were all waiting for me outside. I couldn't call the police because the police were looking for me. Get back, I told the boy who looked like he was trying to ease up close to me. All right, get away from the door. I still had the lamp and something else in my hand. Get back there, I told him, indicating the back of the apartment, or I'll smash your house up. When he moved back, I looked through the peephole. There was nobody in the hallway. They must be waiting downstairs, I thought. All right, I yelled. Get over by the door. He moved to the door. Now get out in the hallway and knock on one of your neighbor's doors and bring a grown-up back here. What? You heard me, sucker, now move. It wasn't my idea. I didn't want to do it. I had to. I don't want to hear that shit. Just get your ass out in the hall, or I'll mess your house up so bad your mother won't even think it's her house. Please, the boy said. Please, my ass, I screamed. If you don't get out there and knock on one of those doors, you can forget about your mother's house. He went outside into the hallway. I slammed the door after him and watched through the peephole as he knocked on a door. A lady answered, and I opened the door and started begging her to help me. Please, miss, help me. They're trying to get me, I screamed, crying all over again. I still had the lamp in my hand. Please walk me downstairs to the subway or to a cab. What happened, honey? She asked. They tried to do it to me, I cried. The woman looked at me and then at the boy. You wait here for a minute, honey, she said. Then she and her husband came out. Don't worry, nothing's going to happen to you now. They brought me downstairs and put me into a cab. I thought a lot about those boys after that night. I hated them. But what I couldn't understand is why they hated me so much. Everybody was always saying what a dog-eat-dog -dog world it was. There were all kinds of people in this world, and most of them seemed unhappy. Everybody seemed to be in their own bag, and few people seemed to care about anybody else. I had read this play by Sartre. The play ended with the conclusion that hell is other people, and for a while, I agreed. Back then, when I was growing up, boys gang-banging or gang-raping a girl was a pretty common thing. They called it pulling a train. It didn't happen to any particular kind of girl. It happened to girls who were at the wrong place at the wrong time. The boys talked about it like it was a joke or a game, like they were only out to have some fun. If a girl was caught on the wrong side of a park or in the wrong territory or on the wrong street, she was a target. 
It was a common thing back then for boys to downgrade girls and cuss at them in the streets. It was common for them to go to bed with girls and talk about them like dogs the next day. It was common for boys to deny they were the fathers of their babies. And it was common for boys to beat up girls and knock them around. And then the girls would get hard too. If the nigga ain't got no money, I don't want to be bothered. If the nigga ain't got no car, then later for him. The more I watched how boys and girls behaved, the more I read and the more I thought about it, the more convinced I became that this behavior could be traced directly back to the plantation when slaves were encouraged to take the misery of their lives out on each other instead of on the master. The slave masters taught us we were ugly, less than human, unintelligent, and many of us believed it. Black people became breeding animals, studs and mares. A black woman was fair game for anyone at any time, the master or a visiting guest or any redneck who desired her. The slave master would order her to have six with this stud, seven with that stud, for the purpose of increasing his stock. She was considered less than a woman. She was a cross between a whore and a workhorse. Black men internalized the white man's opinion of black women. And if you ask me, a lot of us still act like we're back on the plantation, with Massa pulling the strings. After my close call uptown, I became more skeptical of everybody. I was much more careful about the situations that I let myself fall into. I would talk to the men at Tony's, but more and more, I became strictly business. The more I saw of street life, the uglier it was. One day, as I was walking down 8th Street, I saw one of my aunt's friends. Her name was Abby or Addie or something like that, and she was as big as a truck. I turned my head, hoping she wouldn't recognize me. Joey! Joey! I heard her cry out. I kept walking. She kept calling. I kept walking. Then I felt her grab my arm. I know you, she said. You're Joey. Your aunt and your mother are worried to death about you. I don't know what you're talking about, I said. My name is Joyce, and I don't know you or anyone else that you're talking about. Come off it, Joey, she said. You're not fooling me. Come with me while I call your aunt. She had my arm in an iron grip. I thought of making a run for it, but she was too big to play with. She took me to some bar and told me to sit at the counter while she made the call. As soon as she started dialing, I made a beeline for the door. She was right on top of me, grabbing me with that iron grip. You're not going anywhere until your aunt gets down here. In half an hour, Evelyn was on the scene, throwing questions at me left and right. Where have you been? What have you been doing? Where have you been staying? What have you been doing for money? How have you been eating? She asked, and a million questions more. When Evelyn questioned me, it sounded like a lawyer cross-examining a witness. In about an hour, I had broken down and told her everything. She demanded that I take her to the hotel where I was staying. After I packed my things, she told the guy behind the desk, Do you know you've had a 13-year-old girl staying here? I could have you prosecuted for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. The guy looked at me like he just couldn't believe it. I could have crawled under the floor. Then she called up Tony's and told him the same thing. I was dying of embarrassment. But in a way, I was glad it was over. I was getting tired of the streets. I was tired of being grown, and I wanted to be a kid again. And that is where we will pick up at next week. That'll be our fourth study session, Chapter 7. We are making... uh, pretty good progress. We are not quite halfway through the book, but we're close. We're about 40% of the way through the book. There'll probably be, I'm guessing, maybe eight of these, uh, eight study sessions. We shall see. 
We shall see. Uh, number to dial. 760-569-7676. And the code is 564-943-POUND. Press star 6 if you would like to participate. Everyone who dialed in with a hand up, your line should be open. Feel free to participate. Oh, that almost rape scene. Woo! I'm glad she got out of that. I'm glad she got out of that. That's... That's horrible, but that's, I mean, she was just a child out, basically out in the streets. Yes, can I be heard? Yes, sir, Mr. Demery. Okay, uh, I guess I can. Uh, We're ready, chomping at the bit. Go ahead, go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> that I uh, got ahead before. Uh, you know, it always seems to come up, the uh, behavior, the sexual uh, access that white men have to black women because sex is a major part of racism. And... Uh, and black men, uh, you know, the mentioning of black men's preference to to white women. And like I said before, you know, uh, I guess one of the band members were talking when he said he was making a case for uh, his white girlfriend when he was saying that black women were sweeter and that... Uh, uh, black women were evil, and that white women were understanding where black women were demanding. And, you know, it it all comes from confusion, and I think that it it is uh, difficult to, for a black man, for the, you know, to understand how he is being... Uh, discriminated or not discriminated, how he how racism is being practiced against him, you know, by a white female. Because it's the macho thing and he thinks that he's in charge. And I even have had a a black male tell me that he was actually getting back at the white woman, you know, by engaging in sexual activity with her. So it's a, you know, it's a bunch of sexual confusion. And then the uh, the gay man, you know, I guess you would call him a trans, a transvestite. He was uh, dressed as a, as a female and, you know, no telling what he was doing for money. You know, I guess we could imagine. But uh, he, he did give her a little bit of support. You know, she was 
didn't have anything to eat, and uh, she was a uh, wayward and a runaway. You know, she she had some some dangerous encounters there. You know, especially running into those uh, those con artists because I mean it, I keep seeing a similarity between Maya Angelou's book and you know her life when she was growing up as a teenager and what she encountered as a runaway and the con guys that she met and uh, Miss Shakur but uh, like the female caller uh, mentioned, that was, uh, you know, I was just hoping that she got away also from that rape scene. And she did a pretty good analysis of how uh, post-traumatic uh, slave syndrome is active in our mind, you know, because you can just about, you know, link these behaviors and activities, you know, with what was going on uh, during slavery time and how we were damaged and our views of each other. And we have to constantly be aware of uh, anti-blackness and not to fall into that. But, But she made it back home and you know, I was happy for that. But I, I wanted to ask uh, uh, just one question, you know, uh, to Gus, if he had, was familiar with a song that Common had made, uh, I guess it was the year 2000, a song for Asada. And I'll make my life. Uh, yes, sir. I'm familiar with the song. Um, I think I saw him do that song in concert and, uh, I played it. I used it, uh, not last week, but the week before, or I, maybe I might've used it both weeks. Uh, but I, I know I played it the first time around uh, that we did a study session. I had it playing in the background, but, uh, absolutely. And in fact, that was part of why, uh, I chose to do this book. Uh, was because uh, it kept coming to me. Like sometimes the universe, the creative is just sending you uh, signals. That's the way some people interpret it. Um, I had kept seeing her name with the situation in Cuba. Uh, I had already been thinking about this book anyway, but then the Cuba situation, her name kept coming up. And then uh, Common, he was asked to give a commencement speech at a university, I believe in New Jersey, a smaller school. And they found out about that song. I think it might have even been like a fraternal order of police organization or some other group of likely race soldiers got together and were like, hey, how are you bringing this this guy who made a song glorifying a cop killer? How are you going to have him come give a commencement uh, address? And they rescinded uh, the invitation and uh, comment within, I think, like the last two weeks or so, maybe he uh, gave an interview where he talked about the situation and the song. Uh, it was discussed on some, it, made, it was pretty big news uh, when this happened about a week or two ago. But uh, yes, I'm familiar with the song and that has been, uh, that's a part of why we chose the book. Uh, the folks who uh, had hands up who have not been able to comment, I think our retired firefighter in Florida, your line should be open. Uh, and the caller at uh, 9400, you should be with us as well if you two have things you want to share. 
Greetings. Evening. Yes, sir. Coming at you live from the state of Texas, Dallas, Texas, to be exact. Uh, just caught the last part of the uh, the reading. Uh, it was that was that the second second reading or the last reading of, of the night? That was the second one. Wow. <laughs> Time change, I guess. Uh, being in in the state of Texas, uh, yeah, they're very. Uh, I think she hit it right on the head with the uh, origins of uh, the uh, the uh, behavior between black males and black females on the origins of it, uh, yeah. amongst amongst a lot of other things uh, that uh, we do to one another, including uh, beatings that we call spankings or whippings and whatever stuff like that. Uh, that's the first thing comes to my mind, you know, as, uh, as far as, you know, where does that come from? And I'm around, I'm around young people, teenage males for the most part as a football coach, uh, a whole lot. And the language on how, how, uh, they communicate with black females is like, I mean, it's like uh, it's 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 really it's not a, a constructive uh, means of communication. Uh, uh, too many of them, uh, as far as that concern, and uh, and I think uh, uh, Ms. Shakur put it right up, hit it hit it right on the head. Uh, I've had the uh, shameful experience back in college of not physically participating in a, what is called a train, but I actually knew it went, what was going on and didn't do anything about it at the time. Oh, oh. no, Demarie Ford. Oh. I, I hear uh, some other talking in the background. Am I the only person here? No, uh, Sorry this about is that. the firefighter from Florida. Uh, I'm Demarie Ford. Go ahead, sir. Oh, okay. I, I, I thought I was just hearing things. But anyway, uh, yeah, uh, uh, it kind of like brought me back to that that particular incident about back in the seventies uh, when I was kind of like brought into it, but I, I didn't participate in it. But yet at the same time, I didn't do anything to to uh, stop it. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's that's something that we really need to work on uh for real and uh kind of like brought back memories but uh that that's that 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 was my thoughts on on that on that segment that I came in on thank you uh, I can't hear you, uh, Thomas, in New York. I was just going to check in to make sure the caller at 9400, since we haven't heard from you. Did you have anything you wanted to share? I'm just listening, and um, right now I have a, probably have a lot of background noise. Do I have a lot of background noise? You're okay. Okay, basically... Um, as you know, as a woman, yeah, you guys do need to work on that. Um, <clears throat> it has to do with 
you know, it has to, you know, we either spiral, it's like our hair. We either spiral up together or we spiral down together. It's not all you guys' fault. It's not all of our fault, but together it's all of our fault together, men and women. And um, we have to really, really work on it because it gets to the point where, you know, I'm a person who, you know, you know, haven't done anything and I am disrespected by black men constantly. And frankly, I get more um, respectful uh, attention from other men other than black men. And it's a huge problem. And right now in Los Angeles, you have huge numbers of black girls who are prostitutes, who are being raped, and all kinds of stuff. Um, and it has to stop, and the black men must insist, you know, not to be prudish, but for the understanding that what kind of mothers will this make, what kind of fathers do these people make when they engage in such behavior. And that's where we need to come from, it, from and whatever religious um, information um, that will assist us with that, that's wonderful. Um, that's pretty much it. Um, may God bless us and help us as we establish justice first with ourselves. Thank you. Thomas in New York, do you want to comment? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah, I was just listening and, um, yeah, that was a, that was a tough, um, you know, sequence of scenes there to listen to, you know, her making very bad decisions and um, being so young, you know, um, yeah, it, it doesn't shock me, you know, the the village is, um, you see a lot of weird things there still today. Um, and um, just for her to, to to go there and think she, you know, she's fooled already thinking that a woman's a man and he's really, you know, thinking that it's a woman and it's really a man and, you know, first she goes and stays with this white guy. You know, it was just very, very poor choices um, that she made. That race scene was so tough. And, and you know, it, it's, it's strange how the sequences come together because, uh, like the firefighter said, uh, I, was, I remember being in high school, and, um, you know, this is where the sequences come together because at the college that didn't let Common give a speech there because he did the song Gasada. King University in New Jersey, um, you know, uh, I went to a, a party there, and they had a room with, um, you know, two black girls just passed out, and all that was around them was, you know, condom wrappers and, you know, filled condoms, and, you know, it was, they, they couldn't even, you know, they weren't even moving. It was just, you know, like, wow, you know, and I was probably a junior in high school, and I went to a friend who, you know, went to college there. But either way, you know, they have a lot of black people at that college. And when he, they said that he wasn't going to be able to do the speech because of a style, you know, the song, and that, that was mentioned, I was surprised that, you know, none of the groups there were able to, you know, fight for it. Um, but this, um, this, just she was making very childish decisions, and she was a child, you know. And um, I was just, you know, but it shows a lot of uh you know, like, you know, as we read the chapters and she's older and in jail and, 
you kind of can see how she got molded that way. You know, she was she was kind of thrown thrown to the wolves. You know, and, and she she luckily persevered, got out of that rape situation, and you know, um, you know, but it. it you could kind of see she always had that revolutionary spirit. You know, she wasn't going to take nothing from her mother. Fine, I'll do it on my own. You know, and, and, and just, I think that was a lot of what made her what she is. You know, that, 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 that ability to just say, you know, forget it. You know, it, I'm just, you know, going to do it. You know, that's that revolutionary mindset. And that's all I have to ask. Karma, if you're in the building, or any of the other folks, if you have not been... Oh, I didn't see we had other callers. Uh, hang tight. Uh, the person, 2157, you should be with us as well. 2157, if you had uh, comments you wanted to add, as well as 8179, you both should be with us. Uh, Gus? Yes, ma'am. It's Nervous Ohio. Oh, right on, right on. Um, well, when she, uh, when she was talking about being pursued by white men, um, I've heard that story from my mother. I've heard that story from my aunt. My mother used to work at a hospital and work the second shift. And uh, when she got off from work, um, it was nothing to be pursued by white males. Um myself when I was as young as 12 years old and waiting on the corner for a bus. Um, it was um, nothing to be pursued by white males. So this is something that I think that um, a lot of black women, especially in my mother's day and even in my day, uh, don't really discuss, haven't really discussed with black males just how dangerous it uh, it can be for black women. Of course, I know that you mentioned a book by a woman that is going to, that, and I haven't read the book, I think it's called it The Dark End of the Street, where there, uh, she's written a book about women, black women who were raped during the, um, the Jim Crow era. So, um, you know, this is an ongoing problem. And I would also like to say, um, Gus, I, a few years back, well, it's been a while, actually. I, I used to work for a bank. And I got promoted to this position where I was going, I was the court liaison. And what that entailed was taking bank records to court. And if the case went to trial, then I would have to testify. So I would sit in court day after day after day after day and see black people get locked up. And in doing the 11 years of performing that job, I never saw a black person get a trial by a jury of their peers. And this is something that we have to understand as black people. When we get into trouble with the law, and this is something we should even tell our children, that you will never get a trial uh, by your peers. 
You know, O.J. Simpson is the only person I know that got trial by people who look like him. But that is not typically what happens to black people in a court of law. But I can tell you that that experience, from that point on, I never miss voting because I saw up close and personal what not voting could do. I would see black people go in the clerk of court's office to pay their fines to support the judicial system, and they would be talked to like dogs because the people who ran the courts knew that we didn't vote. So um, I think that's all I want to say, and I apologize again for my nervous rant. No need. No need to be nervous. No need for apologies. Thank you for uh, the input. And uh, I would just cherry on top. Uh, and O.J. Simpson is in greater confinement right now. <laughs> so there you go. Um, the uh, I thought it was it was a couple of people that dialed in who hadn't chimed in before. Did anybody who had a hand up who hasn't been able to comment? Uh, he should be with us as well. May I be heard? Yes, ma'am. Uh, good evening, guys. Thank you, the callers. I did want to chime in on this, um, the last part that was uh, being read. And I w agree with, uh, I think it was Thomas from New York, um, to kind of uh, follow up with his comment, how her decision-making skills was that of a 13-year-old who, um, you know, ran away and trying to, quote-unquote, be grown. And as a mother of two teenagers, you know, it's really interesting how, and, and then when I reflect on myself when I was a teenager, you really think that you have the ability to make, you know, decisions that are wise. And it's interesting how she encountered this Miss Shirley, Mr. Shirley, whatever, whatever he or she was, but she was warned, you know, how dangerous the streets were and, um, she was fortunate to avoid being raped and, and being in this situation, but so many uh, women and men, for the most part, are not that fortunate because, you know, they're in situations. They find themselves living in the streets and, you know, trying to survive in the streets. And I live in Detroit, and um, it's just, and, and it's interesting because I work with a uh, with youth, and I just hear stories after stories of how, you know, they're frustrated as teenagers, and they want to be grown and want to make these decisions and don't understand in many cases how, you know, you know they'll have their time to be grown. And um, when you're confused and you're seeking independence or your freedom and under this system, you know, it's really easy to be uh, victimized by, um, you know, a situation like she described and um, how it just really show how important it is to really minimize contact with um, other victims unless it's something constructive. Uh, that That's really what stood out. You know, people put themselves in just some horrible situations and I know that in this particular case where she was 13 years old but I just think of all the things that uh, could possibly be avoided um, if you just minimize contact with other victims and uh, that's all I wanted to uh, share at this point. Thanks. Mm -hmm. 
Uh, let's see. I think our Bay Area listeners should be with us as well. If you had a uh, comment you wanted to add, uh, struggling to find her. Oh, there you go. Did you have a commentary you wanted to add as well? Yes, thank you. I was thinking about, um, well, I'm sorry I come in so late all the time, but I, I work, and one of the, the guy that I work for, he has Alzheimer's, and his, both of his sons have either one's married to a white woman and one has a baby with one, so I hate to have that kind of conversation, and then I don't have a job the next day. But I was thinking about um, when we were um, listening to the reading, and she was speaking on um, how the boys treat the girls. And um, she uh, she was stating how it was conditioned from slavery. And I was listening to, I got a, a link uh, maybe two days ago from one of my friends. He lives in Canada. And um, it's a Caucasian male. Uh, he had Tom. Uh, Tom. I'm driving him the reading. Tom. L-E-Y-K-I-S. So, um Whoever the guy is, he has a radio show. So at this particular moment, he's, uh, well, you know how white guys, by nature, they don't really have respect for women. So I've noticed that the black men have adopted that attribute of the black men. And, you know, black women, we've adopted a lot of the white women's characteristics. But um, he's, uh, he's talking about, you know, uh, sex on the first date. And the Caucasian male, just real raunchy and disrespectful. He, you know, how he runs through the women, doesn't really care for American women. And um, they use different cold words, but then he's like, well, I'm going to reach, he's bothering Usher. Usher made a, uh, must have made a statement saying that um, women should be treated with respect, don't just treat the women like video hoes, and this, that, and the third. Just trying to, you know, because he did have a mother, and he, he he's a cool little kid. So... He's just disrespecting them, talking them down on him. And then he mentioned, um, he's like, okay, well, we're going to get my black callers on. All my black friends call in. And then they got all these different black guys. And basically the black guys were just came in ripping up the black women and just kicking them down. They're just this and this and all they want is money. And they're gold diggers. And then they don't do this and that in the bed. And you got, you know, because we're naturally, we're the original um, mothers. So we have morals, natural by nature, you know, anything else that we're going against the grain. So, no, we're not putting down on the first day, putting out for twos and fuels, those kind of things. So they're just really talking real raunchy. So he's allowing the black male to vent because usually since they're conditioned the way they are, they're going to say things against, you know, the black woman. So the black woman is this, and it is proud. And so everyone's just disrespecting the black woman. But what I noticed um, is we get that from the black white men. And I'll be, I'll, I'll be quiet. Right on, right on. Uh, did we miss anybody? Anybody not able to get their second comment, or not second comment, anybody not able to make a comment uh, after the second audio clip? There we go. Anybody didn't get an opportunity? Great. Got everybody. Um, make sure I get my... Uh, Thank you to Retired Fighter Fighter uh, for sharing. I uh, definitely know it's not easy uh, to reflect back on on some of our moments that are not our best. Uh, but definitely thank you uh, for sharing. Kind of help us. Uh, I think 909 says kind of put some uh, flesh and bones on this so we can see how this plays out uh, truthfully uh, in our lives on a regular basis. Um with Miss Shirley, I think you all touched on a lot of the major uh, points, but just with uh, Miss Shirley, 
I could have sworn black people were notoriously homophobic. I thought that's what everybody said. How is it that Miss Shirley can exist in this environment around black people and she's not being beaten and mauled and bloodied and running for her life? I thought black people were homophobic. Anyway, um, y'all already touched on some of the decision uh, making skills and she was kind of fortunate things didn't end up way where I mean, just I was thinking about all of the the myriad of dangers her working with this pedophile uh, who's molesting her and all this stuff. And then she's going out and uh, doing this con game uh, with these <clears throat> kids against these white men. And it's like they could have killed her like and it would have been nothing. It wouldn't even been an investigation. Just you know, no one will be missed. Uh, she, <clears throat> even in committing this con game, she's jumping over roofs. And I mean, it just seemed like, wow, like, uh, things could have ended up bad in a variety of different ways from the behaviors, the decisions, uh, that she was making, uh, as a 13 year old, um, the gang rape scene, it, uh, reminded, I don't know if people have read, uh, Nathan McCall, make me want to holler black male journalist. I don't know people. Anywho, uh, if you haven't read it, you should maybe check it out. It's pretty interesting. Uh, gives info about racism, but he all, he, he talks about that same despicable, uh, phenomenon. This just total blatant disregard, uh, for femininity and, and raping and, and just all of the sexual terrorism and sexual abuse, uh, that goes on. And really it, it, it is in an environment that is encouraged. Uh, we talked about this with, uh, Dr. Baruti, the sex imperative, <clears throat> even some of our other uh, guests have talked about how this gets uh, promoted. And really when you're in a system of injustice, any kind, <clears throat> excuse me, any kind of abuse of people is promoted, encouraged, tolerated uh, of black people. It's already, this is life unworthy of life. So who cares? Whatever. If you want to go out and kill a hundred, 10 million black people or rape them or anything else, who cares? Uh, it just promotes that type of thinking. And, and I think all of you all have done a great job just pointing that out, that we end up being contaminated and carrying on those exact same uh, wretched uh, behaviors. Uh, and we did a whole series of programs talking about that sexual abuse and different resources. Uh, folks can check out <clears throat> uh, Black Survivors of Sexual Abuse website. Folks can check out great information uh, but absolutely, I think that's that is one thing that we could devote more time and energy to, like really being serious uh, and talking about sexual abuse, talking about it with your children, things to look out for, what to do, strategies you want them to have, uh, and just really being mindful. That's that's such a massive problem. And I think Mr. Fuller talks about that all the time. When you damage someone uh, sexually, I mean, that can that can have long range, like lifelong adverse impacts on how a person thinks and their ability to function, their ability to relate to other people. I mean, it's just, it's horrendous, uh, the damage that that does to people. That's one thing we definitely should be investing more time and energy, uh, to discuss and, uh, minimize, eliminate immediately. Um, yeah, that Murphy, I've never heard that before. It, it reminded me, uh, this segment, and the uh, sec the first audio segment, both of them reminded me of Minister uh, Malcolm X because they both had uh, pretty um, 
I would say, sharp analysis of the sexual dynamic uh, under the system of white supremacy. But it also, this week's section, particularly uh, the first audio segment, when she was talking about uh, the musician and she had a crush on him, he had a white girlfriend, uh, and they were, you know, she gave the laundry list of excuses and everything that some of the black males would give for why they preferred a white woman. None of those reasons being racism, white supremacy. It reminded me of that passage in uh, Minister Malcolm's autobiography where he says that the participants in these arrangements, that they don't respect each other, right? He was saying the black person doesn't really respect the white person, that they're just, you know, taking advantage, trying to get some money or whatever, but they don't really respect that person. And I, I said, when we read Minister Malcolm's book, I said then that I didn't think that was accurate. And I, you know, cited different texts from his book where I thought, you know, pointed out that, that, that to me is just not accurate. I think some of the passages from this book as well point out that, uh, the black males talking about how uh, evil and demanding black females were and how sweet and wonderful white women were. That to me does not sound like someone who has no respect for a white woman. I could be in error. Uh, did anybody have anything else they want to get in the last like 90 seconds before we conclude? Um, I have one, one question. Is, is the gang rape, is that gone because I'm older or is that gone because it was a 70s thing? I think it's still here. Uh, they just had okay. the Steubenville case, which was kind of uh, the same thing, uh, where they were molesting some uh, female who was kind of incapacitated uh, in some way and taking pictures of it and what have you. So there, there's lots of evidence that that is unfortunately uh still very much a problem may i be hurt yes ma'am oh, yes and basically in my opinion um remember in the in the book where the boy goes i didn't even want to do it and he felt that he was made to do it mm -hmm. i feel like a lot of the gang rape things that happen and i know a person who you know and some of this these girls are participating in what they call training okay and some of, a, a lot of this is that if black-on-black uh, -black for men, when you guys' opinion of each other and what you guys think is cool, shapes a lot of this. It shapes so much of it is you guys would not, you guys, I don't think, realize how much of it is shaped. And if black men have a culture, make it cool, you know, to be, you know, not, not just... Uh, don't sexually assault people, but and and not because we're trying to quote act like white people or anything like that. But what we need to do is we need to say what is it that we need to do for ourselves to make family, which is the basic unit of our society. How should that look? You know that what is the optimum way that should look? And I'm telling you, um, I think if men pressure other men to first off, you know. Um, not to do this, not to, not to have sex with right now, like I said in Los Angeles, not to have sex with underage prostitutes. You know, and if, if it's true, if men truly put pressure on other men, a lot of this could get cleaned up because um, we're free now. We're, people are not knocking down our, our, uh, my door, our white men, and, and demanding uh, or, or raping me or whatever. That's not happening now. We, I mean, not to say that, I mean, we've we, we made some milestones from our blood. And what we have to do is we have choices that we can make, and we have to make those choices. And I think, honestly, 
we can clear up 20%, you know, 20% of this problem is what black men consider cool. And it has to be cool all across the board from the, from the um, cradle to the grave or how you guys are to behave towards black women and towards all women. And if you guys do that, 80% of our problem, in my opinion, will be solved. Because a lot of this has to do with, I mean, can you, I mean, with women being violated and then they're taking it out on the other men and then they're taking it out on their male children. Being there, it just goes on. It's like a spiral. We spiral up together or we spiral down together. Thank you. That will do it. Uh, we have done our three <laughs> and we should be back uh, next week. Same program time, 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific. Uh, we should be picking up on Chapter 7 for next week, right at the beginning, Chapter 7. Uh, for next Friday, uh, we should be here uh, tomorrow. Compensatory call-in, 9 p.m. Eastern, 8 p.m. Central, 6 p.m. Pacific. Workplace racism, current events, what's been going down last seven days, Definitely look forward to hearing from folks. I guess this is a, a so-called holiday weekend. I don't know. That impacts if folks have plans uh, for the weekend. If you're doing all that, be codified, be safe, make wise choices, uh, reflective of our position in the system of white supremacy. Just because it is a so-called holiday does not mean that you abandon codification. Might even need to increase it. Uh, if there's going to be a lot of nonsense going down over the next, what, two, three days. Uh, anyway, if you get confused, have questions, feel free, drop an email until justice at gmail.com. Invest if you think the program is constructive, racism, hyphen, notes.blogspot.com, racism, hyphen, notes.blogspot.com. PayPal button, top right corner. Listener-supported counter-racist radio. If you are not into PayPal, let me know. You can drop me an email and uh, we'll get you a physical mailing address. Thanks again to all the folks who have supported generously down through the years and kept us on the air. Uh, We'll see everyone in about 24 hours. Again, I will make my appeal under conditions of white terrorism. Sobriety would be best. You got to consume intoxicants. I would definitely suggest no whites be present, even be careful of the non-white people that you have in your company. Uh, Just a lot of times that can produce a lot of that incorrect behavior and just unnecessary problems. Uh, You definitely don't want to be behind the wheel. I would even say be cautious about being a pedestrian under the influence because racists, white race soldiers don't need much provocation. Under conditions of white terrorism, sobriety would be best. That said, Creator, we ask that you help us remain patient with other black people. We ask that you help us remain patient with ourselves. Remind us to demonstrate the highest levels of black self-respect at all times in all places, each and every time we are in contact with another black person. It has been time. Replace white supremacy with justice immediately. Context 
of White Supremacy signing out. Thanks all for tuning in. Nigga, you so brainwashed. I'm a victim, no brother. You're a victim. Hey, I'm a up. victim of 400 years of conditioning. Shut up. The man has programmed my conditioning. Mm-hmm. Even my conditioning has been conditioned. Listen up. I won't sugarcoat it. This is the longest cold flu and allergy season we've ever seen, but we're not alone. We've got Instacart. Sure, you may be a coughing snot faucet who just wants mommy, but you're not giving up! Not when cold medicine, fragrant herbal teas, and honey shaped like bears can be delivered through Instacart in as fast as 30 minutes! Now let's go win the sick playoffs! Daddy, I just want my soup. Oh, sorry, Sport App says it'll be here in, in a few minutes. Instacart for the win.